0: and show differ quite a lot. We all know this well by now. There are huge differences in plot arcs, characters, timelines, details, just etc. So many different ways. A lot of our favorite people, places, dialogue, and the like don't make the cut. Sometimes to our great consternation, however, book and show converge quite a lot on the main plot points. This episode is emblematic of that. For example, Arya's plotline will, pro- will probably differ hugely in some very important ways, but her return to Westeros, and even her return to the Westerland, since Nymeria is there after all, will happen in the books too, most likely. We also know, or knew, Daenerys would eventually head to Westeros in the books. These moments are great on TV because of how cool they look, not because we're surprised. It's going to be the same in the books. We're not going to be surprised when Danny goes to Westeros. It'll be like, ah, at last, all right, this is happening. Deaths are a major area where book and show will oft differ greatly on circumstance and detail. But if you look in terms of bottom lines, if I were to tell you that Marjorie, Loris, Mace, Lancell, and Pycelle, Kevin, Lord Walder, Blackwalder, Lame Lothar, High Sparrow, etc., if I were to tell you all of them die in the Winds of Winter, well, first you'd say Kevin and Picel can't die in Winds of Winter. They're already dead. But the rest of those names, it wouldn't be a stretch at all. They're, you know, there's just... I, think it's totally reasonable that any of those characters could die. So that's where book and show converge, on these major points. So, in a sense, I think we're following Quaith's vision here. To go forward, you have to go back. Game of Thrones has done that. At the start of the story, it's basically Lannisters, Starks, Targaryens at the center of the action. The Baratheons become important with the rise of Renly and Stannis, and the Tyrells, of course. The Riverlands and the Vale and and Dorne and the Iron Islands all show up eventually. All the while the White Walkers overshadow everything. Now we're kind of back to that starting point. The book and show are converging, probably. We don't know where the books are going to be, but this seems likely that these high points are going to be hit. But a huge number of plot threads are gone. The story is far more epic than it was at the start, but the players in the game are a callback to that very beginning. We've kind of returned to the basics of Stark, Lannister, and Targaryen, while the White Walkers are still overshadowing everything. It just seems that they're coming sooner, or soon. For, for the most part, the secondary houses are no longer independently making moves, and maybe we can expect that for the rest of the series. They're squarely following the leader now. Uh, Martell and Tyrell are part of the, are, and part of the Iron Islands are with Queen Daenerys Targaryen. The Vale in the North have declared for Jon. Well, the Vale maybe is a little sketchy there, but in a, so far that's how it seems. Uh, Jon's the King of the North, and Cersei has crowned herself Queen on the Iron Throne. So it's really just, we've really simplified things. However, in a lot of ways, it's more complicated. Now, these are also only surface level similarities. Despite these parallels, everything is different. I have nothing but confidence in George R. R. Martin's The Winds of Winter, whenever it comes, but I'm more excited than I was before after seeing the show's version of The Winds of Winter, in terms of this episode being called that. Because it was awesome, and many of the same things are going to happen, even if they happen a lot differently. So... What did you guys all think of the episode? Let's go around the the horn here and and just get first impressions on what you guys thought.
1: Well, first of all, I noticed uh, Winterfell changed in the title credits to have the Stark Sigil again. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it was a great episode. Best of the season for me, personally.
0: Right on. What about uh, Radio Westeros? Welcome back to you guys and tell us what you thought.
2: Yeah, hi, really glad to be back, especially after this episode, which I absolutely loved. It was wonderfully directed by Miguel Sapochnik, brilliantly scored and had a compelling kind of cinematic feel for the first 20 minutes, which I really loved. Several questionable storylines from this season were actually given great endings and so it made sitting through them seem worthwhile after all it was exciting it was carnage and it was absolutely top-notch tv and in my opinion one of the best episodes of game of thrones not just for the season but so far in total right on. what about you lady gwen
3: well i'm pretty much kind of echo yoke boy i think it was just brilliant directing by spachnik uh, the way scene transitions were used to tell the story was very striking and so was the musical score And I also have to say that a lot, not all, but most of the concerns I had with the writing were resolved, at least as far as plot lines go. So, you know, overall, I agree that this is one of the best episodes probably ever, definitely best of the season.
0: Awesome, yeah. So that's great. It's always more fun for us when we all love the episode. It just makes it easier to be enthusiastic about it, to break it down. The energy for analysis more than ever. Always have plenty of energy for analysis, but it's just it's just so much easier when you really like the episode when it's awesome like this. So a quick shout out before we get started to first to Lord Mark Joseph, the Snow in Winterfell, the rider of Mazaikartho, White Dragon with green scales, horns, wings, and talons. We're hoping to have some art of that dragon fairly soon, look out for that in the coming months. As well as the art for Rory the Subduer, and tamer of the last of Valyria, rider of Wrathraeus, a silver gold dragon with violet eyes, talons, and horns. And a thanks to First Sword, Jeff Gnarly, the Long Snapper. Uh, these and others support History of Westeros on Patreon, and it's one of the main reasons we're here and doing so many episodes. So thanks to you guys, and thanks to everyone else who's a supporter there. Also, a special shout-out to Sir Jeff of House Gustafson. So, one more announcement before we get into the awesome episode, and that is our wrap-up. We are going to do one more episode after this one, a little wrap-up episode. is going to be live, and we're going to set it for Monday, July 11th. We thought about doing it the usual Wednesday, but we have some scheduling conflicts that we can't resolve, so might as well push it to Monday. Monday the 11th will be a link in the description of the episode to the Google Plus event. And yeah, and some of you watching on YouTube got a shot of our cat casting over there. (laughs) Many times you've seen our camera shake randomly, and oftentimes it's because of this cat jumping on our table while we're recording. Mm -hmm. What can you do? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay, so let's start with King's Landing, where the episode itself starts. And my first generic
2: observation is the skyline. A King's Landing will never be the same. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, it won't. And um, I love how the episode starts with the bell ringing from the Sept. And it's interesting because we see that bell flying through the air about 15 minutes later, squashing someone. Yeah. And then we, we
0: see a lot of people dressing up for the trial... Cersei is in black, she looks different than we've ever seen her. her, her dresses are really just something else there, it's just a whole new look for her, and well, this she, her character has also changed a lot uh, based on the events of recent episodes and this one, so it kind of reflects that. What did you, did you, Lady Gwyn, do you have some uh, thoughts on this, on her look and the costuming in general this episode?
3: Yeah, I think the costuming in general was absolutely fantastic, especially in, this, in the King's Landing segment. Uh, I did notice Cersei, Tommen, and Marjorie and uh, even Pycelle with his maester's chain all featured a, a shoulder-to-shoulder uh, chain or drape or something, which was one of many recurring visual motifs in this segment um, that worked really well with uh, Jawadi's score to tie it all together for us.
0: What did you think of Shae? Uh,
1: I thought uh, it was great. Yeah. I had a question for everyone, though.
0: Okay, go for it.
1: Who was every, who was the best dressed in this scene? Oh, for me, best dressed. it's Tommen with mm. the bling that he had. That stag know, bling really, was really, really good.
0: Yeah, that was cool.
1: <laughs> what yeah, about uh, uh, you, Lady Gwen?
3: I think it was Cersei. That gown really told the story. When I saw her in that black dress with that military look and those shoulder pads, I just thought uh oh <laughs> she's up to something <laughs> i
2: i think the uh, best dressed was the high sparrow he's very modest like <laughs> myself you know he's reusing his clothes like i often do um <laughs> it's good seeing him you know the contrast to see everyone dressing up and he's there in his usual kind of um modest I don't know what you'd call it. It's kind of a sack, isn't it? Um, (laughs) Yeah, it's just a burlap sack. (laughs) (laughs) Also, I've got to say that as soon as I saw Cersei drinking the wine, I knew there was trouble coming for the High (laughs) septum as soon as I saw that wine pouring.
0: (laughs) (laughs) My pick for best dressed? Well, you know, I always just... I I really approve of of Sir Gregor's outfits (laughs) in general. You know, he just...
1: His one outfit. his
0: his one outfit and his one horribly messed up face that we got kind of a bare glimpse of. His his cloak is so long and tall. I mean, you gotta have. He just God, he's so huge compared to everybody else. It's, it's insane seeing him next to Cersei and those other Kingsguard. It's like really just. I know he's so, a real person too. It's like really blows my mind how large that guy is.
1: So you'd see like a Kingsguard lineup who wore it best, and you would choose yes. Gregor. He
0: wore it biggest. <laughs> <laughs> uh. So let's talk about uh, Pycelle and Kyburn. That's where uh, there's a few. A lot of this is set up, right? Where we know what's coming, and this is one of the things I was talking about it with the, with my intro spiel that. Even when we know it's coming, it can be amazing when we fully know what's coming. And we're all, like, I was sitting there in disbelief, like, yeah, this is really going to happen. She's really going to blow the sept up. Even though we've, like, completely predicted it, you know, it, it's been foreshadowed in the books. We talked about it a lot. It was still just just overwhelming to ha- actually face with the moment of it actually happening. And it's, the tension was built by these little moments with the dressing... And Tommen being stopped from leaving by Gregor, and then Picel and Kyburn's little scene. Kyburn is just so. That look, right? Kyburn is basically becoming Virus in this scene. Picel is becoming Kevin in terms of the books. The, the dialogue is some of it straight from the books, uh, even, down to the, uh, even down to the way Kevin is brought into the room, or rather, Picel is brought into the room is from a little bird kind of like a, telling hey, you've got to come see Picel. And it's the same thing, he goes into Pycel's laboratory, which used to be, I mean, which is Kyber's laboratory, it used to be Pycel's remember Cersei gave that to him. So it's, it's, it's very much a throwback to the books there with just uh, the characters swapped out with the same result. Because as we know, both Kevin and Pycel end up dead anyway. So one thing that's slightly confusing maybe is why this was even needed. Because Pycel was on his way to the trial, he probably would have just died anyway. So I wonder if this is some cor- sort of like, gruesome reward for him, for Kyburn. You know, we see Gregor kind of getting a reward of Scepter Unela. It's another kind of gruesome to think of that as a reward. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Kyburn probably hates the Maesters. You know, they kicked him out of the Citadel, and, you know, getting to take one of them down and seeing him die, he might take pleasure from that. Um, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. What do you guys think?
3: Yeah, yeah, those are my thoughts exactly. I'm sure Kyburn enjoyed it. Uh, Pycelle had been so condescending to him. In all the councils, all their meetings. So in spite of his, I bear you no ill will, which, by the way, it was really a line from Varys to Kevin. It was yeah. dialogue mm-hmm. from the book. Uh, I'm pretty sure he did like every minute of it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: He's like, ah, I should have grabbed a dagger myself.
1: Am I terrible <laughs> for laughing out loud when I, when it cut to Qyburn's smug look on his face? I just Not pictured him thinking, no. like, check me.
0: That look was really something. Yeah. I, agree, I agree with you. That was And the was music
1: like, combined with it, it's a very... Like shocking moment for Pycel there, yeah. but very humorous. <laughs> yes.
0: I love Pycel's reaction to Kyber. He's like, oh, I don't have to sit here and
2: listen to you. Like I'm walking away before I even finish my sentence. <laughs> I liked it when Kyber said, "Sometimes before we can usher in the new, we must uh, the old must be put to rest." And I kind of took this as a like a meta nod. <laughs> because before they can bring in new plot lines they need to put a bunch of old ones to rest which is exactly what's going on in this episode
0: yeah for example this this isn't really a plot line of its own but the but Septa Unella, the forsaken Scepter, this brutal revenge of, of from Cersei kind of echoes how she is in *A Feast for Crows* to say the Blue Bard. Well, she's giving them to Kyburn, and Kyburn does the dirty work. But it's it's kind of similar. We didn't act. It's, it's interesting. We actually see more brutality from Cersei in the books, uh, though. Show Cersei is rapidly catching up after this episode. She may have caught up after blowing up everybody. That's that might be right. enough to push her in the lead, so to speak. So. Uh, this, but this thing, this scene was a kind of a surprise. I, I, we, we we know that Cersei promised to get revenge and she was powerful, but this is kind of a smaller plot point. So it's really... But I think it's important because it shows us really how far Cersei's gone and how dark she's become. Uh, what Radio Westeros, you guys did some work on Kyburn. You did a Kyburn episode, yeah. and
2: so you have extra insight here. Yeah, we did talk about this in our Qyburn episode... Cersei sends women to Kyburn, and it's largely left to the reader's imagination what goes on. And we realised, you know, that's where the horror lies. They could have showed it, and it would have been disgusting. But actually, not knowing, uh, you know, appeals to some kind of dark part of our brain—the the the unknown, doesn't it? And it's really similar to what's happening here, albeit uh, the roles of Kyburn and Gregor are switched. Right on.
3: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I love the fact that this scene uh, started out with Cersei saying, confess, confess, you know, that throwback to Eonela's torture of her, uh, but ended up being Cersei's complete confession, which she did acknowledge in the scene. And obviously she was only going to give that complete confession of all the bad things she's ever done to someone who wasn't going to get out of there alive, which I think really added to the tension. Um, also, there was something akin to Ares in this scene, and we're going to talk about maybe some similarities between Cer- Cersei and Ares shortly, but you remember that Ares um, had this sexual excitement whenever he burned his enemies, and I found that in Cersei's triumph she almost seemed to be caressing Eonella In you know, she was walking around her, touching her, I just found that really creepy and... Very chilling. Yeah,
0: the, the whole scene was chilling, and the, her explanation for it all, I thought, was, was really well done. Like the dialogue, well, it's really one-sided dialogue, but it was really good. The whole, i the, the calling Septuynel out for being a hypocrite was on point. I think I agree. I think hmm. she is a hypocrite. I mean, I don't think she deserved this.
1: I wish we'd actually means. gotten her confession. Yeah,
0: that <laughs> would have been nice, yeah. <laughs> so, but this is, Yoke Boy and I, we talked a lot about, we, we mentioned it throughout the season how excited we were to see sir gregor in action well this is not what we had in mind yeah. <laughs> i'm glad it, yeah be careful what
2: what you wish for Aziz. <laughs> exactly like whoa
0: hold on that's not what we want we want like sword fighting and fighting other warriors not helpless septas so let's move on to the trial itself the We've been calling it the Green Trial along the lines of the Red Wedding and the Purple Wedding. And frankly, the Red Wedding and Purple Wedding combined isn't even close to the amount of death, the amount of major characters. Well, the amount of death as far as t- terms of number of people killed is, is probably more in the Red Wedding because so many soldiers were slaughtered. That's but said, as far as like named characters, far more. Think about how far that
1: explosion went out from the Sept. I got to think that more people than were just in that Sept were killed
0: yeah you're right there were some people in the surrounding neighborhoods would have been killed i can understand why that flame didn't spread throughout the city and take the whole city out because it's not going to spread through dirt streets and stone streets and Mm -hmm. you know so it's going to find spots where the houses are close together maybe burn all those up but every house is going to have a street corner that it can't burn past so i i can understand why it didn't spread Mm -hmm. farther but you're right it had to take out a lot of people i mean you saw just citizens blown away when you see like the bell crashing down mm. and all that so yeah
1: but before any of this happens we have uh, Loris betraying Renly. Uh, not that it really matters because <clears throat> nothing from this trial is leaving the room <laughs> yeah, at all that's true uh, but yeah, we does. have this quote from Loris where he said I will never betray Renly by word or deed but yeah, what are you gonna do? show Loris is pretty different and uh, you know you could call him a casualty. ...of this <laughs> culling?
0: Yeah, I think so.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah. Uh, Laura's show storyline, which you just indicated, has been a fairly major divergence from the books. Um, his death in the show was probably part of that larger move of contracting um, the narrative and laying the old to rest, as Kyburn said. In the books, if he recovers from his wounds, which I suspect may be greatly exaggerated... You might ultimately do something like this, betray Renley or but i I think it's more likely that he's going to play a role in a future alliance between the Tyrrells and Danny if he recovers and comes back on yeah,
0: I agree with that. I think he so, might if 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 the way the book takes it that he just kind of dies relatively soon, maybe his wounds are as what what were said. I kind of agree with you that the wounds are quite possibly exaggerated, but there's definitely a chance they're not, and if he dies then That'll kind of get us to the same place, book and show, with, as far as that character goes. Of course, Tyrell family is massively different in the books. And, yes, that's hard to predict. Where the It's very difficult to predict those convergences. But we could consider the possibility that both Loras, Willis, and Garland all just die somehow. And they're kind of left in the same place. Maybe Olenna will be the last person standing in the in the books as well. with Minus all the Tyrell cousins. Because there's no way the entire Tyrell house is going to be wiped out <laughs> in the books. That seems really unlikely. There's a ton of Tyrells. A ton, And frankly, there's probably some cousin Tyrells out there in the show, too. They just haven't bothered to mention. But I doubt they'll even worry about addressing it. But Natalie Dormer, this is interesting to think about, like, behind the scenes and what the characters, the actors, rather, think of their own characters' decisions. Natalie Dormer suggests that her biggest mistake was thinking that the High Sparrow could handle Cersei. She had been checking Cersei's moves until she was kind of taken out of action by being imprisoned. And she was working her behind-the-scenes thing, trying to pretend and go along with things. And she had her long-term goal of getting out from under the High Sparrow. And she thought the High Sparrow had, was keeping Cersei in check. But she was wrong. And Mar- Natalie Dormer says that was her biggest mistake. So that, I think that's pretty interesting. And let's not forget that back in episode four, maybe this season, I don't remember exactly which episode it was, but Olena just dresses down Cersei as basically like, you have no allies, everyone hates you. You know, your own family's against you. What are you going to just do, kill everyone? Ah, uh, well, yeah, actually, right here with the wildfire. She did, indeed, pretty much just kill everybody. <laughs> yeah,
3: she did. And, and let's not forget that she's more or less snuffed out her own house with Kevin and Lancel being in the Sept and then you have the unintended consequences of Tommen's death. So, you know, really... House Lannisters down to Jamie Cersei, and, Maltirian. Well, uh, but in trying to take a page from her father's book, she did something that he would never have done, spilling precious Lannister blood, because for him, House Lannister was everything. So I, I think her this act was more akin to Targaryen madness, obviously, than Lannister ruthlessness, which is probably what she was trying to go for.
0: I agree. This is a lot more, this is shades of I almost said Marys and Agor, but Magor and Ares. The connection to Ares is pretty straightforward. Obviously, it's his wildfire that she's detonating, and he's the guy who wanted to do that. He loved to burn people. That's you know, Mad Queen, Mad King stuff. Those parallels just kind of write themselves. But with Magor, there's actually a lot of parallels to uh, Yoke Boy. Here's a take away. Take us away on this quote here that explains a lot of uh, the parallels.
2: Yeah, here's the quote. On the thirtieth day since the trial of the seven the king awoke with the sunrise and walked out onto the walls. Thousands cheered, though not at the scepter of the Remembrance, where hundreds of the warrior sons had gathered for their morning prayers. Then Magor mounted Beleriand and flew from Aegon's high hill to the hill of Rhaenys, and without warning unleashed the Black Dread's fire. As the Sept of Remembrance was set alight, some tried to flee, only to be cut down by the archers and spearmen that Magor had made ready. The screams of the burning and dying men were said to echo throughout the city, and scholars claim that a pall hung over King's Landing for seven days. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, so instead of Rhaenys' hill, which is the site of the Sept of Remembrance, it's Visenya's hill, which is the site of the great Sept of Baelor. Uh, the Sept of Remembrance was replaced by the Dragon Pit. I wonder if Cersei will order something to replace the Great Sept, which was built 130, 135 years ago, or, uh, years ago by uh, Baylor the Blessed. The Great Sept of Baelor. Uh I'm not sure that we can have the Great Sept of Balor blown in the books. The wildfire was placed there by Ares, just like in the show. Yeah, but it was removed. Pyromancer Hallene says to Tyrion, and much of the stock we made for Ares was lost. Only last year, 200 jars were discovered in a storeroom beneath the Great Sept of Baelor. No one could recall how they came there, but I'm sure I do not need to tell you that the High Septon was beside himself with terror. I myself saw that they were safely removed. So right there we have solid confirmation that the Great Sept is probably safe from being blown up, unless they put they could just put Wildfire back there, certainly. <laughs> Nothing's stopping them from doing that. But much of the stock we made for Ares was lost. Also seems to confirm that there are more... Uh, to, like the High Septon says, terror-inducing surprises left out there, yet undiscovered. Now, both History of Westeros' Summerall episodes that we, Shay and I, did, and Radio Westeros, you guys did a Jamie Cersei episode, have a lot to say on this topic in general, so I highly recommend those. But there's a behind-the-scenes uh, bit that is really important from the show creators. They talked about some things from the books, and they decided that it's it's pretty clear from their wording that they decided that the great sep would be a great place because of the caches of wildfire. It gave them the idea to blow the Sept up. So that idea did not come from George, specifically the great sep. George's plans for wildfire and King's Landing appear to be something different if we've misunderstood uh, ex- that quote correctly, which it seemed pretty straightforward. So the guesses, well, it's time to make some guesses. Um, we don't know. Another important difference between book and show here. I'm guessing the Faith Milton is kind of done now. They lost their leader and a lot of their key people and they may not, that might that may be the end of it for them. It, in the books, though, no way will it be that simple. Even if they someone kills the High Sparrow, the Faith Milton is armed again. They're out there. They're all over the place. And just, as Magor had, didn't ever finish them off. It was his, you know, nephew, Jaehaerys, that took care of that through peace, through peaceful means. So I think that, that this will be a lot more complicated in the books. Now, the actual explosion was quite a spectacle. I like the touch of taking out the bell. (laughs) That was cool. Cersei walked past that spot. That was one of the exact spots that Cersei walked past. So we see it getting destroyed. Uh, Now, whatever happens in the books, it might not be a big surprise, but scenes like this remind us that surprises are awesome, not necessary, right? Sometimes knowing what's coming makes the resolution more satisfying, not less. I think this is the case here. Like, we all knew this episode was going to blow up and it was like the tension building up to it was incredible. So, I think that's what's going to happen for a lot of these book versions of what we saw in this episode. We're going to kind of know it's coming, but it's going to be really different in detail. And it's going to be really awesome anyway, even if we kind of know it's coming.
2: Yeah, and there is plenty of Cersei Wildfire foreshadowing in the books. Really, a lot of it, you know, perhaps one of the most foreshadowed things, I think. Here's some examples. We see very early on that Cersei is a player of the game who's prepared to take extreme measures. She says to Ned... When you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die, there's no middle ground. Okay, and in the same conversation, um, we get this description of of Cersei from Ned. Her eyes burned green fire in the dusk. Then in Clash, we get candlelight gleamed green as wildfire in Cersei's eyes. And then again in Clash, we get this one. Her eyes had a bright feverish heat to them as she looked down over the hall. Eyes of wildfire, Sansa thought. And then even more in Feast, she burns the Tower of the Hand with wildfire. Here's a quote. Let all of King's Landing see the flames. It will be a lesson to our enemies. Now you sound like Ares. And I think that's Jay- Jamie replying there. <laughs> and, and finally, again, at the Tower of the Hand as this. The wildfire was cleansing her, burning away all her rage and fear, filling her with resolve. The flames are so pretty. So there's plenty of hints to Cersei being linked to wildfire there.
0: Yeah, it's really strong. So even with the comments by the showrunners meaning that the great set might not be what happens in the books, there's clearly a ton of setup for Cersei doing something wildfire related in the books. So... It's your you know right now it's it's all guesswork. it's very interesting the possibilities if you all have suggestions on what you think the theory or the best theory is for this, send it our way westrus at gmail dot com or at Twitter or Facebook any of other ways that you normally contact us. We're very curious to hear your thoughts on what how this different how this difference will play out in the books. Hmm. Death of Tom and this was probably the most moving moment for me uh, all the things that happened. So many of them were predictable, and we kind of guessed that Tommen would die. But once Tommen was sitting there in, at the castle, and it was clear he wasn't going to be, at the Sept, I didn't really see what would kill him. I did not foresee suicide. I'm guessing a lot of other people were totally surprised by that, too. And the music stopped for it. So it was really just... It's, the fact that there was no music after the music being so prominent before that really made it stand out. And you just feel bad for the kid. I don't know. I, it, it just... Yeah, but, but we can also make bad jokes yeah, about it, it does right?
1: not stop people from the most popular joke being King's Landing. <laughs> That's it. We've got countless comments on our videos with King's Landing. <laughs>
0: yep. So, it's pretty funny, but also... Uh, yeah. But, if we're thinking about the books, as we are supposed to be doing here in this review, uh, Book Tommen and Show Tommen are, is one of the biggest character differences there is out of all the major characters, say... Anyone above, like, Tier 3 or Tier 2, depending on how you rank them. Tommen's at least in Tier 3, if not Tier 2. And he's... I don't see a 7, 8-year-old kid, kid killing himself. I just don't. And I don't see him going to the Sept. Uh, I don't see trial-by-combat being canceled in the Seven Kingdoms in the books either. So I think there's a lot of major differences here. But we do have that confidence of Cersei setting off the wildfire. So maybe something goes wrong. Maybe that's what kills Tommen. What do you guys think in general about this Tom and Death scene and maybe how it works in the future for the books?
3: Well, I th- all those Tom and scenes leading up to it were so poignant, building that sense of inner conflict and def- despair that he clearly felt that led to that final act. He loved Marjorie and his mother both. That was made clear throughout all the episodes. Uh, his, lo- his loyalties were truly torn and if it was Marjorie who led him to side with the High Septon in the matter of Cersei's trial, he was no doubt really conflicted by that. But then in the end to see that that decision actually led to Marjorie's death and so many other people's, you could see that he held himself responsible um, and he felt like there was no way out of the situation other than the window
1: <laughs> to make another. <laughs> <Ba-doom-sh>!
3: uh, uh, <laughs> but you know, when he took off his crown, that was when I knew, and I, I don't think I'm alone in that. I just had this like, oh no.
0: <laughs> yeah, I knew too. I was yeah. like, my, I, I sat forward, I was like, what? And then I just yelled no at the screen. No. You know, when he actually did it, it was like, ah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was such a terrible moment. I was, that's the the moment I screamed at the TV most <laughs> was Tom and No. And I'm really glad that we see kind of no emotion from Tommen. He's he's in shock. He's completely confused and he just slips away quietly. There was something kind of dignified about Tommen doing this without kind of crying or breaking down. It was like a quiet resolve, I thought. I did also wonder if Tommen being left alone and able to do this was a mistake on cersei's part perhaps calling sir gregor to torture yunella gave tommen that window of opportunity and no pun intended no pun intended (laughs) oh come on
0: (laughs) (laughs) well i would have intended that one for sure (laughs) uh so i yeah i agree with that i think that and the showrunners agree with that too they mentioned in the behind the episode the, un, the big unintended consequence of Cersei's action and was was Tommen's suicide, and she. Had she, they say, had she been there to comfort him, it wouldn't have happened. And I, I got to agree with that. She would have at least physically prevented him. He wouldn't have been, like, fighting to get past her, to push her out of the way, to jump out of the window. I
1: think he'd, uh, they're the showrunners, but I tend to think that he would have still done it eventually anyways. He might have, A day yeah. later or two days later. How do you live that down?
0: It's hard to, but the initial shock is possibly the, the, yeah. what drove him. I don't know. Who knows? It's he's 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 a... Uh, a sensitive kid, you know, he definitely could have lingered in him. He could have killed himself later. I totally agree, but it, so I, all I guess we could say is it wouldn't have happened right then. It may maybe it would have just happened later. I definitely think that's, I think that's a good point, but yeah. So it's that's that. And Cersei again, just like Tommen, shows no emotion. She's broken now. Uh, maybe not broken, but empty, mm-hmm. and uh, we hear that also from behind the scenes that maybe empty Cersei is the most dangerous kind of Cersei. She's not... She's lost what little humanity she had. Her children were a humanizing factor for her. That's gone. She may lose Jamie's love as well after all this. It's really just... Doesn't look so good. But I do like calling her Cersei. <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: Really great acting on her This all through this episode. Just facial acting. A lot of things she did without talking at all. Like her reaction to the step going down was that was strong lady go ahead what do you what do you think
3: well i want to just talk about the uh this the scene her crowning scene itself um from lena's costume which has evolved a little bit from she wore that black dress you know in the first scene now she's got this also a black dress but it's even more military looking it's almost quite shiny armory looking Um, And then you had the absolute silence of the crowd, uh, the foreboding kind of imperial-esque or almost fascist arrangement of the soldiers and the straight lines of of everything uh, with his overhead camera shots. Uh, It was, you know, really impressive uh, scene. And the music, which I know Yoke Boy wants to talk about, also added a lot to it.
2: Yeah, the music was fantastic once again. The tense cello from the first 20 minutes comes back, but this time, when Cersei's actually crowned, there's the classic motif from the Reigns of Castamere embedded for a couple of seconds, which I think is excellent scoring. Yeah, I, I totally
0: agree. I think this is... Maybe the best music the show has ever done, not just for the episode. I don't mean this episode because I think that's a be- even stronger case. I mean the whole season. But, a lot, of course, a lot of these themes have been around since season one. They've been using the same musical themes, the same bits and pieces have just been evolved a bit, and they've become more prominent in some ways. Some of them are fairly new. I uh, highly recommend checking out the soundtrack. You can get, right now, it's, there's a lot of places to get it. And I think it might be even running free right now on Spotify um, for the sh- until it's fully released. I'm not sure about that. But. At the
1: very least, listen to Light of the Seven. Yeah. That is the song that was playing during the first half.
0: Yes. So, yeah, that's true. That that piano music and with the cello and everything. Yeah, it's just, that's, the, that's the goods right there. Okay, so Cersei being crowned in the show. I think this is a, a point that we think is not going to happen in the books. And which means that Kyburn probably won't be made hand of the Queen either, which is the second question I have written down here. Yoke Boy, you have, I think you've nailed the logic as to why Cersei won't be crowned in the books and and, uh, it explains what the show is doing here.
2: Yeah, I I guess it is possible that she's crowned. But remember that the show has left out a character of huge significance. Aegon, or Phaegon, as the case may be, is looking really good to take King's Landing. And I personally think that's a very strong possibility. But in the show, there's simply no Aegon. And so they really have to give Danny someone to fight. So I think Cersei's role as a leader of King's Landing is going to be greatly inflated going forward in the show in comparison to what happens in the books.
0: Right. And I, I agree with that. But there is some indication, like if we're trying to guesstimate the possibility of Cersei being crowned or ruling de facto and there are some hints from some of the spoiler chapters that you know after the death of Kevin and all these other things that she has regained uh, much of her former prominence as far as being in charge at court possibly partly because there's just no other people around and, and people like Marjorie are still potentially uh, being held down by the faith. And of course, Marjorie is much younger in the books as well. She's she's clever, but this show Marjorie is far more on top of things, I think, at least as far as we've seen. It's, it's a, the book Marjorie's a little less known. So, yeah, so I agree with that. I think that there's a chance for it, but I think you're right that this is substituting a lot of the Phagon stuff. And even it's funny that even Lena Headey herself doesn't think Cersei can hold on to power for long. <laughs> and and Nikolai Coster aka Jamie, same thing he's like. No, she cannot possibly hold on to this throne. Everyone hates her. And, you know, she's just, <laughs> she's just grasping at straws here. She's kind of like, sees the moment because who else is going to crown themselves there? Like, what, who is, there's nobody in, in the proximity to the throne right now. So anyway, so it just looks really bad for her. She's stuck between two more powerful rulers. Uh, Jon looks way more powerful than than Cersei does right now even though his coalition is maybe has some questions regarding it. Danny to the south though looks like a juggernaut. Like how something's got so you're right also to point out that something's got to slow Danny down. There's got to be some conflict for her. Can't just be this easy. And yeah, Tyrion to young Griff in the books. Yeah, boy, read this. This is a great quote here that I think is relevant.
2: Yeah, this is from A Dance With Dragons, Tyrion VI. Westeros is torn and bleeding, and I do not doubt that even now my sweet sister is binding up the wounds with salt. Cersei is as gentle as King Magor, as selfless as Aegon the Unworthy, as wise as Mad Ares. She never forgets a slight, real or imagined. She takes caution for cowardice and dissent for defiance. And she is greedy, greedy for power, for honour, for love. Tommen's rule is bolstered by all of the alliances that my lord father built so carefully. But soon enough, she will destroy them, every one. Yeah, and
0: Jamie might be the catalyst for taking for starting some of that destruction. He's stuck with her throughout all this, but I I'm starting to think that even he, Show Jamie, has reached his limits. I mean, he's that moment where he's staring at Cersei as she's being crowned, he's doesn't know exactly what's happened, but he has to be realizing, wait, so Tommen is Tommen dead? What happened to what happened to wait what happened to, he's just like his head's got to be spinning and this is exactly what he gave up his honor for to prevent someone like this ruling this is like Ares
3: 2.0 yeah there's a reason why jamie's role in averting that original wildfire plot was included in bran's visions earlier in the season it reminded us of that very very fact uh, but i think this Last final scene with Jamie in the throne room it was a huge moment of redemption for the show, for myself personally. Um, and a lot of others have wondered what happened to the rift between Jamie and Cersei that's so central to his redemption arc in the books. Well, boom, right here we saw it in this one single scene, in, in a single look that passed between the two of them you could see that crystallizing. And, you know, we've talked a lot about the differences between conveying things visually versus on the page, and I think this is a classic example of how a good actor and director can convey something in one subtle moment that might take pages or chapters to unfold in a text.
0: I agree. It wasn't just his look, Cersei's look, too, said a lot. She was kind of not... She was expressive without being expressive as to what she was feeling, you know? It was like... She had this hard look, she didn't smile, she didn't frown, it was just, yep, (laughs) this is where we are now. (laughs) So, and this, what a thing to happen with Jamie, Jamie gets back to King's Landing to find things in such massive disarray, and meanwhile, the work he's done in the Riverlands that he's left is kind of undone too, (laughs) and he doesn't even know about that yet. Lord Walder's victory, very short-lived, it's really well done the way the scene we we get to the scene because the, the beginning of this toast is immediately after we see Tom and jump. Walder is of course unaware of this dramatic change in Lannister power. He might not be so excited to be an Alistair, an Alistair? An ally of the Lannisters with Vess in mind and know the dramatic change that he's unaware of that's about to come to his neck.
1: We do learn something somewhat interesting here, whether uh, they learn this from George R. R. Martin himself or not, we don't know, but it seems that House Frey's house words in the show are, We stand together, as Walder toasts to House Lannister, they all yell, Hear me roar! And then he toasts to House Frey, and they all yell, We stand together. Yeah. We also set, learned some course. house words, for, some words for their alliance.
0: Yeah, that's a weird one. Op- well, the Lannisters and phrase send their guard. I didn't know alliances had words, but hey, <laughs>
1: it's
0: right. pretty good, pretty good words, I guess. <laughs> so Lady Gwyn, you have some more thoughts on this as well.
3: Yeah, I think what was interesting about this is that Tommen jumping out that window made us think of Bran, uh, Jamie pushing Bran out the window, or it did me. Uh, we, and then we see Jamie in the next scene and, In a similar way, um, Arya and Walder Frey reminds us of Kat having her throat cut at the Red Wedding. And then that moves into a scene of Sansa and Littlefinger in the Winterfell Godswood, which connects to Kat through both the characters. And also there's a memorable scene of Ned and Kat in the Godswood early in season one. I, I really can't say how these scenes you know spread throughout the episode the editing really tied it all together for me
0: Sean our show only reviewer really really talked about that a lot not just, he's talked about it a couple times a season but he said that, yeah episode 10 that was just the big big deal
1: mm-hmm. uh, we also have something harkening back to a conversation that Jamie had with Brienne uh, this was a couple of seasons ago when he says that you know you'd almost think you could be a Lannister cuz she was blonde um, Anyways, and so right here, Bron says, "Not blonde enough for you?" Yeah. So you know, uh, Cersei, Brienne, he has a thing.
0: Danny maybe is kind of a long as shot. As, 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 as,
1: but... as he's on that Jamie Danny hype train, <laughs> <laughs>
0: I think it's pretty remote, but it's it's, no.
1: it's, it's it is possible. It is
0: definitely. <laughs> Possible. Well and we'll maybe, talk maybe about maybe that more a little yeah, later. We'll, we'll, we'll
1: get we have a section called westeros Most Eligible Bachelors.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, I do think it was probably fan service on the Frey pies. I think some of the show people were a little confused by that like, wait. I mean, they thought it was cool because it was like this badass type of revenge like eat that Frey, literally. Eat that Frey. <laughs> yeah. So, uh so they cheered it, but I think they might have been like, "Wait, how did yeah. how did she even pull that off?" Like, yeah.
1: how, where does... definitely I was cheering, but I also had <laughs> the back of my mind like. What, did she clear out the twins' kitchen and get the ability to carve these guys yeah, up? Like... And uh, I liked the thought of her picking a pot pie to help her prepare this, <laughs> yeah. this pie. The logistics
0: are definitely like, wait a second, how did she actually pull this when up? When did Arya
1: even learn how to cook?
0: Yeah, she stashed their bodies in the gaping stomach wound she has. That's a There's a lot of room in there for her to <laughs> <laughs> store things. <laughs>
3: um... I do want to say that, you know, I understand the uh, show people's confusion, but it wasn't completely out of nowhere. You just have to go back quite a ways. Uh, three years back, Bran told the story of the rat cook at the night Four in episode 10 of season three, which was immediately following the Red Wedding. You know, the rat cook cooked his enemy's sons into a pie and fed them to him, but for the crime of breaking Guest right, not for feeding his enemy his own children. He was condemned by the gods to forever after consume his own children. So that's why this is a completely fitting punishment from a northern perspective for Walder Frey, who broke Guest right at the Red Wedding. And it's really the ultimate judgment. I think it's fitting for Arya to deliver it in the show, since she's got this list of people whom she's judged guilty of crimes against her family. So...
0: Yeah. Yeah. Now, Yoke Boy, you had one of your fears assuaged here by this scene.
2: Yes, really glad that Aya can change faces. Mm -hmm. That's what I wanted so much, I can't tell you. When we reviewed that last Aya episode, I said it was just such a shame that Aya couldn't take that ability with her as a kind of token of her time with the Faceless Men and as a skill that she'd earned. From them with the uh, the House of the Black and, of House of Black and White, so I was just so pleased to see that you know she has some faces. Uh, for me, it makes her time with Jack and seem so much more worthwhile. It makes her such a more interesting character now. She could be anyone popping up at any time. She's so dangerous because she has the skills of a faceless man, but without the the codes that they abide by. So I really can't wait to see where she pops up next. That's yeah, very exciting. Very yeah.
1: exciting. I'd like to point out real quick that uh, the fan service for the Frey Pies is because Manderley's Meat Pies are very popular in the fandom. And <laughs> I'm assuming that everyone, listen- everyone listening to this has seen that theory, but it's not exactly the most uh, easy to read just into it in your reading. If you haven't listened to our episodes on that subject. Mm -hmm, I believe Radio Westeros has one where they would talk about it a little bit.
0: Yeah. Yeah, We we talk about it in our battle of ice and Mm -hmm. which one is it for you guys?
1: The North Remembers. North Remembers,
0: okay, okay. I wasn't yeah. sure. You guys have an Aria episode, too, so I wasn't sure if it was part of that.
1: Yeah. Uh, so check that out if you're more curious about cooking Freys into pies.
0: <laughs> yes, there's recipes as well.
1: <laughs> oh, we even had a we even had an
3: advertisement for Frey for Pies. So. Oh, yeah, I remember that now that you mentioned
0: it. That was good stuff.
1: <laughs>
0: so here's a bit of uh damn it, why not uh, almost moment here, like... Blackfish, if he had just left with Brienne or just stayed alive a little longer, he'd be back where he, things would be where he wanted them to be. Walder mm-hmm. dead, you know, the the, the several phrase slaughtered and, you know, the Weverlands is back kind of wide open again. Which brings up a funny question. Like, Arya taking out Walder was, according to Maisie Williams and some other behind-the-scenes stuff, she basically went to where she knew one of her People on her list would be. She is not entirely sure where Cersei's going to be. Probably King's Landing, but obviously that's going to be harder to get to in terms of getting inside the Red Keep and all that. She was pretty sure Walter Frey would be right at the Twins. No problem. That's where he is. He's not a guy who gets around a lot. So she went there. And what's so funny about that is how big of an impact it can have, the potential for it is politically. Killing out those killing those Freys for her was a, was revenge, but the political ramifications are pretty huge. Jamie just set, straightened things out over there and now it's mm. falling apart. We've heard. In prior episodes, at the Blackwoods and Malisters were said to be in revolt. They'll be ready to join John. I think. They'll be like, screw the Lannister, screw this new mad queen. Like, yeah, let's go join this king in the north situation. That's probably where it's headed. So Arya just, like, accidentally is really helping things along that way. And Edmure's in prison there. Is she going to let him out? I, I kind of really feel like it's could be just that straightforward that she frees Edmure, but also she has no idea Edmure's even there. So I don't know. I think that's really odd. Uh, so uh, I'm not really sure. What do you guys think? you think she's going to let Edmure out? Is it that depends
1: on how much she was listening to conversations. People yeah. would be talking about it. Walder talked about it. She wasn't privy to that conversation, but other people might be.
0: That's true. He did say, well, you know, it looks, give me that funny joke of can't kill your own son-in-law makes yeah. gives a family a bad name <laughs> that was a great line <laughs> yeah it doesn't seem like aria was standing close by for that but she may have heard him say something like that or something similar like the idea of her having heard edmure was cap- in captive captivity there is not remotely a stretch i'm sure that a lot of people would just talk about that openly mm-hmm. so but i do think the political situation in the riverlands is potentially a lot more interesting uh lady Gwen, what do you think do you think that they're going to declare for the king in the north
3: I would expect so, especially if Edmure is freed and retakes River Riverrun. I mean, they're certainly not going to declare for Cersei. Um, so, it, you know, it looks to be shaping up sort of like this in the books as well, although by a somewhat more complicated path. But definitely wouldn't surprise me if we now see the Riverlands and the Vale together with the North, which is kind of where we expect things to land at some point in Windsor Winter.
0: Right on. Okay, let us do a quick shout-out to our Patreon sellsword captains who get their names mentioned every three episodes or so. First off, Peter Blaze of the Emerald Isle, captain of the Werewood Wanderers. To Long lives, quick deaths, cold beer, and warm women. To Dagron, marshal of the Axe, captain of the Red Tide. Resistance is futile. Garion Pike is wielder of Grave Embrace, a Valyrian steel axe, and he is captain of the Iron Wave. Iron's kiss is eternal. Also, Kyron Kalsbane, captain of the Stone Shields, whose motto is The Torrent Breaks Upon the Stone. We have Captain Kithic Deadeye, of the Scarlet Longmose Pierced by Darkness. We have Jael, captain of the Burning Shadows, Victory in Ashes. And we have Ker Bouchard, captain of the Walking Drum, whose motto is Yal Balsan, which means May There Be A Road. Now, you can sign up on Patreon and get a cool motto or title like that if you want. If that's not for you, you can always make a straight PayPal donation. Go to our website, historyofwesteros.com. There's a donate button at the top. Give whatever you feel is necessary or that you're able to give. And if you want to get a shout out, just ask us and we'll give you one. Hmm. All right, so let's go to the North. Big, big stuff happening in the North. There's so much to talk about here. A lot of things, a lot of new plot lines set in motion. A couple things we didn't expect, a couple things we did. We'll start off with John Melisandre, and Davos, because that is, I believe, the first scene we see. Yeah, John isn't yet king in this scene, but he's kind of being treated as the de facto leader. That makes some sense. I mean, he's the victorious heroic battle commander, and he's a proven leader. Before that, Davos and Mel know him better than they know Sansa by a long shot. Davos has already been following John for a while, so it kind of makes sense. He's the commander, you know, from his perspective. They, but still... It's interesting that Jon is the one to give justice here, not Lady of not the Lady of Winterfell. Um, mm-hmm. Interesting.
1: Yeah, this this scene had a line that I loved, I really loved, which is, "If he commands you to burn children, your lord is evil." Yes, which <laughs> is really gets at the heart of some of the debates that we've had about how magic and religion works in this world and the things that they're asking. You get it gets back to even thinking about Azor Ahai, you know, shoving his sword into Nissa Nissa. Is that uh, is that a good or evil? And it really makes you think. And it was just a really well-acted scene in general with Davos uh, getting this justice for Shireen. And for me, Shireen was one of the most tragic deaths in the whole show. Yes. And so it was really great to finally get some form of resolution.
0: Yeah. I wonder... Yeah, I agree with you. Davos's emotion was really strong. And, and Melisandre was... Her acting was great too. Carissa's acting was great. She was she she looked guilty. I mean, she didn't look like she defended herself, but she wasn't like, what other choice did I have? She you know she kind of danced yeah. around it a bit. But what did what did you guys think? Radio Westeros, young boy. What did you think?
2: I think it's always interesting to compare Mel and Davos. So great to see them in a scene together. They start off in the story as the two opposing birds on Stannis's shoulders. And here's really the climax of their inherent incompatibility with their worldviews and personalities and so on. Here, not only does Davos learn of Mel's part in the burning of Shireen, but also Stannis's too. All season, we've seen Mel doubting the Lord of Light, her god who has proven somewhat unsound. And, you know, it's really confused her. But now Davos must have a similar confusion and regrets about his role with Stannis. Who, in in effect, was his god for so long, you know? So it's interesting to see the similarities between these two characters, and uh, yeah, it was a it was a great scene. And as, as Shayer said, it was acted superbly. Maybe they should
0: take on uh, do Septa, Septa Unella's play and take on Sir Gregor as their new god.
3: Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> <laughs> or not? No, it's not.
3: Or not. <laughs> yeah. Or not. I think. Uh... You know Mel But you've all said Mel sort of lost her uh she's lost her confidence in this in this uh season, but um you know she she kind of had a flash there when she half heartedly or defended reallor and tried to justify what she had done, although you could see it wasn't quite up to her old standards of fanaticism. but John just didn't buy what she was selling. Um, or or he would have let her stay you know but I think what's important is he he owes her the debt of his life and so he allows her to leave and sends her south and banishes her and of course the question going forward is whether that's gonna work for him or against him in the long run
0: yeah uh, the scene had major shades of Rob and Rickard Karstark and Danny and Jora those same ex- yeah. situations where they're faced with an important ally that has done something that the unforgivable but same time that person has performed extremely valuable service and losing them might be counterproductive to the larger goals it certainly didn't work out for Rob. killing Karstark did not work out for Rob at all sending Jorah away that was a different situation the ramifications of Jorah's loss weren't nearly as large as losing the whole Karstark support in their army and making them into an enemy Jorah's just one guy you know the Karstarks were a whole army But still, there's a lot of parallels here and I I like thinking about it along those ways.
1: Yeah, just like we had a lot of fun thinking about where Jorah will go now that he was he was sent off again, now that but, you know, in an amiable way, he's welcome back at this point. But we wonder where he'll go and I wonder where Melisandre will go. I gotta think that she might just she knows about the Brotherhood. They welcomed her and Thoros is there. And that leads us into her interacting with Arya, mm-hmm. potentially, uh, if we think Arya might interact with them. And Sandor, Clegane, and of course, Danny.
0: Yeah, Danny is an interesting possibility. She's already got red priestesses. We're not really sure whether some of those red priestesses are in that armada or not. It's not clear at this point. But Danny's familiar with red priests, uh, red priestesses, and certainly so is Tyrium at this point and Varus, although they aren't exactly mm-hmm. in friendly towards them, no. especially Varus. So this is really kind of hard to predict, I think, but the thing about Arya is important because back in, I think it's season three, when Gendry is sold to the brother, sold from the brotherhood without banners to Melisandra, she says to Arya that we will meet again. The pro- so that seems like a good place to hang our hat as far as immediate expectations. The problem with her joining the brotherhood is the brotherhood's going north and she's not supposed to go north. Mm-hmm same I mean, Arya is probably going to eventually go to Winterfell to maybe find her family and so Melisandre like, can't really go there again unless
1: I, I like that I've seen this comment multiple times oh. that she should just go back as a kind old woman
0: <laughs> yeah take off the glamour no one's going to know it's Melisandre was
1: like man this, <laughs> this woman's really helpful <laughs> and really old
0: It's like I'm Melisandre's grandmother <laughs> <laughs> I don't support burning kids no 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 <laughs> <laughs> I would never do that <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so that's so melisandre big open question that's a good like semi cliffhanger-y ending with a lot of possibilities it's not a cliffhanger but it's a very open <laughs> question like where will she go next and a lot of options i mean she can pretty
1: much go anyway it's even
0: possible she i kind of doubt she goes to like cersei or something like that yeah. but cersei likes the people who burn things yeah
1: yeah i have to think that she heads south maybe it meets up with the brotherhood maybe that's the end of her storyline maybe she. Manages to tell Arya what's going on at Winterfell. And mm. maybe Arya decides to let her leave, but Melisandre will get the news of Daenerys. I have to think that. I think they'll meet up. Yeah. I really don't think Melisandre's story is going to be over before the White Walkers attack.
0: Yeah, and, and we've even talked about in the books how it's a bit crazy that Melisandre still isn't aware of Azor or Ahai. Because, you know... Yeah. Both show and book have played up Danny's role as Azor Ahai, and I I back that. I think she's. We'll talk about it more later, but I think she's more clearly checked off the boxes of the Azor A' prophet than anyone else by by a good margin. And certainly, a lot of the characters in the story believe that she fits it best. But Melisandre and Thoros in the in the books don't know that she even exists to this point as far as we know and she's literally the savior like the the jesus figure of their religion you know come back to earth according to the high priests of that you know the people in charge so it's kind of funny that they're not even aware of her existence so it's got to happen at some point like you say so yeah it's hard to uh, without any book material to draw from it's very hard to predict where this is going but that's part of the fun we don't know all right let's take another let's take our mid-episode ad break and we will be back shortly for King of the North 2, Electric Boogaloo. Mm -hmm. Yeah, King of the North. I was actually surprised by this. I did not see this coming at all. I I didn't think, didn't conceive of the possibility. I wonder if someone had suggested it to me. I might've been like, yeah, you know, that makes a lot of sense, but never, never thought about
1: it. I talked about it with you the day before.
0: Well, no, I know, but I never thought about it like in advance. No point did it occur to me until you mentioned it and then it would actually happen. I was like, oh, wow, yeah. So it was a surprise for sure to mm-hmm. me um, in a lot of ways. But it was very similar to Rob Stark's coronation in a lot of ways. Uh, Watching her and supporter Lady Priss pointed out that, when, that John looked at Sansa a bit like the way Rob looked at Kat. Like, whoa, what is happening? Um, Rob looked proud, though, and Ra- John looked grave. Like, more. Heavy weight on my shoulders. Damn it. Kind John of like, always
1: looks brave. Yeah, John always yeah. looks <laughs> grave. You're right. <laughs>
0: yeah, he, he looks a lot, you know, he looks a lot like how Ned is supposed to look in the books and, and how mm-hmm. he's supposed to look in the books, like, you know, a kind of expressionless but kind of dark face like that. Very yeah, grave is a good way to put it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Some other similarities and points of interest to this uh, coronation uh, or crowning, whatever you're gonna call it election of John, a claim for John as king. The first two, (laughs) it's funny, the first two declare for Rob were Umber and Karstark. That didn't work out so well. It wasn't those two who turned against him. It was those two houses. It wasn't those two lords. Well, Karstark turned against him, but he killed him. Uh, And then it was the following Karstarks that were the real problem for the Starks. Uh, Then the Riverlands getting sucked into the Kingdom of the North based on Rob being declared... King is kind of similar to how the Vale's being sort of sucked into this new kingdom in the north. And it seemed like the Vale Knights were definitely cheering John on. I believe uh, Jan Royce was one of those cheering him. They wanted to join the war against the Lannisters. The Lysa just wouldn't allow it. So, you know, this is where their loyalties have been all along. Uh, In the books, it's a little more complicated, I think. And it might be more complicated here, too. I'm not so sure the proud Vale Lords would follow Jon Snow in the books, but... If he's legitimized by say Rob's will, then he's not a bastard. And the Vale Knights would be fine with that, I think. Who could um who could John and name as a hand of the king? We had a new hand of the queen for Cersei, we had a hand of the queen for Daenerys. John
1: I think sensible choices would be Davos. Except Davos isn't northern, you know, he wouldn't really be that great in that situation. Sansa but we don't know any females who've done it, but if we're having females, my pick is Lyanna Mormont for Hand of the King. <laughs> that well, would be anyone, awesome. <laughs> anyone have their picks for who you think John will pick as Hand of the King?
3: I think uh, the Davos or Sansa ideas, although yeah. would be awesome because she's an awesome character, but realistically, <laughs> he relies a lot on Davos, and Sansa symbolically would probably be a nice touch, so.
2: Uh, what do you think the Northmen would make of Torment, Hand of the King? <laughs> <laughs> He'd
1: well, have to clean himself up a bit, I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Could we make
3: some jokes about his member and his, <laughs> his hand? And, <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of opportunity there. <laughs> <laughs> the Hand of the
0: King should be the man with the biggest member. And everyone knows that's Tormund, right? <laughs> yeah.
3: yes.
0: So the bigger question, I think, with who will be the hand... Is will John actually be king of the north in the books? I'm I leaning towards yes because of again, because of Rob's will. Let's get some other takes on that. What do you think, say Lady Gwen?
3: Yeah, I think you know, according to the GNC collection of theories, yes, he's been named Rob's heir, and various factions are working to support him, according to you know, some of this analysis. So, even though at the point at this time, John is ignorant of all of it. Uh, he's dead at this time kind of dead Yeah, he's <laughs> but even leading up to that he had no idea as all being done sort of very uh very much behind the scenes but yeah i definitely think that's where it's going yeah
0: yeah and i do also wonder about how they'll react in the books if they find out john is dead and that if he's raised from the dead will that impact their whether they feel him uh, to be worthy of kingship? I imagine so, because he'll probably have still done some like things to prove it and to, you know, maybe defeat the Boltons or something. I don't know what he's gonna do. But
1: <laughs> if he was if he was raised as a white the white wolf. <laughs> oh
0: god, the white, the white wolf. wolf. <laughs> nice, nice. Uh, so it is a little hard to to see how this will go. Um, but one thing that's certainly being set up is this conflict between him and Sansa, which is going to be pushed by Littlefinger. Littlefinger is looking to be a major player in Season 7. I mean, he's already a major player, but looks like he's going to be as prominent as he's ever been. Do you guys think he's aiming for the Iron Throne of the Books, too? That was a little surprising for me. I I didn't, it's not like, oh my god, Littlefinger wants the Iron Throne. I mean, obviously he's always had huge ambitions, but I I was a little surprised to hear him admit that. What, What do you, you guys think he's aiming for the Iron Throne of the Books, too?
2: I think in the books, no. In my opinion, Littlefinger's backstory with Cat and Brandon and then Ned points towards a yearning for Winterfell to take the Stark's place as I think he might have fantasised about after losing Cat to Brandon and then Ned. Of course, the subtleties of his backstory have been lost on the show and they did have on the show Littlefinger looking at the Iron Throne with Varys obviously coveting it earlier on. I think that was a couple of seasons ago. And so in show canon, it makes sense that they follow that up. But in the books, I there's no such moment. So I disagree. Okay.
3: Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with Yoke Boy. The, in the show, yes, it's telegraphed. You had that chaos is a ladder scene where he was clearly ogling the throne. But I think in the, in the books, not so much. I think he's right where he wants to be mm. as far as the books go.
0: Yeah. Now, earlier when I pointed out in my intro spiel that we've kind of gone back to the Stark, Lannister, Targaryen, and White Walker situation, the state of affairs, I didn't mention Littlefinger, but he really does belong in that group. He's been a mover and shaker since the beginning, since season one, obviously, betraying Ned and doing all sorts of set-up things. Even before the show starts, before the part of the backstory, he's a huge character. He's played a huge role in moving things along. Um, So he's part of that, and again, so it kind of makes sense that he's part of this kind of closing arc the last 13 to 15 episodes whatever it's going to be but it's going to be different for him he is in a much higher position of power and the things he wants are slipping away from him rather than being kind of open up for the taking so i think he's not going to be able to be as subtle i think he's going to have to be like more overt and and doing things more out in the open he won't be able to be as sneaky
3: yeah i agree i think he's going to find his world closing in on him pretty quickly we saw several of his famous course corrections in just one scene with Sansa uh, but as his options become fewer he's going to have less opportunity to slither from one side to the other and he might soon find himself caught in a trap of his own making at least I hope that's sort of how it ends up uh, for him the other thing I noticed about speaking of him in Sansa is that he had these sort of significant looks during Jon's acclamation. That he threw her way, starting with one that was sort of like a wry grimace. Oh, I got that wrong because he had just asked Sansa, who do you think the North will support? You know, me, uh, the true born daughter, or a bastard? And then <laughs> they claimed the bastard. So, but it, it sort of developed over the scene to uh, many more loaded glances which were clearly aimed at sowing discord so
0: yeah that we certainly got a lot of questions and comments on what did that look mean passing between those two and I think there's a lot of fair interpretations there but I think bottom line is Littlefinger's gonna be trouble and Sansa may be convinced of some of the need for it she may you know she still doesn't necessarily fully trust John. John doesn't necessarily fully trust her their family and they have you know? We know that neither of them are uh, likely to do anything dangerous to the other, but you know, it's it's different when you're in the moment like that. And Littlefinger is really good at playing on people's fears and manipulating people. And it really depends. One major thing he can do is undermine vale, the Veil's support for John. You know, like he's they seem to be supporting John. They seem to be willing to go along with this. But I mean, Sweet Robert's not there. It's it's not. He hasn't declared his allegiance to John. For example, and, and Littlefinger, we all know Littlefinger's got quite the the control over Sweet Robin. He can really convince him of, of what he what he wants to convince him of. It feels like so that I think is a very potentially a very fertile ground for what we're going to be seeing next season as far as how this conflict's going to play out.
1: This definitely gets me wondering where Sweet Robin is because we. Knew he wasn't in the battle, but we thought it was there was a chance he went up north with them. But yeah. he doesn't seem to have gone north with them, and I wonder who's taking care of him in the Vale. And when we talk about where Danny might land later on, it definitely—I don't think it's the Vale in the show, but it definitely has me thinking that if Sweet Robin's there, she could sweep up with him. Little yeah, dragon.
0: Absolutely. The uh, Vale is we we certainly listed the Vale as one of our few possibilities for where Danny could land, and I think that remains open. I don't think it's near the top of the list, but it's on the list for mm-hmm. sure. And you know, uh, another thing people have been asking us about is why is John ahead of Bran? You know, uh, Rickon's dead. Everybody knows that. Why is he ahead of Bran? They they both know Bran is alive on their own. Sansa didn't have to tell Jon Bran's alive. They both learned it separately. Jon learned it through Sam, which is very different from the books, where Sam doesn't tell. Sansa, of course, is nowhere near... Sansa doesn't know Bran is alive in the books either, so that's just a... She's not even in the North in the books. There's no there's no comparison there. <laughs> so, here's why. It's pretty simple, honestly. I think sometimes we, we think the laws are stronger than they are. They're, the laws are always just just guidelines in, in a situation like this where people have armies and when someone can a king can just be acclaimed by popular demand or you know like basically what happened with John they they're naming him king partly because of his blood but mostly because of him being the war hero, the guy that stopped the Boltons. I mean, that's the main reason they're, I mean, it's, it's not a lot different than Renly coming before Stannis. It it wasn't legal, but a ton of people went along with it because they just preferred Renly.
1: And it caused him issues.
0: It did cause major issues. You're right. So, and that, that could be a problem here. Although I don't think Brand is going to cause the same problem. Stannis is good. Stannis isn't going to be like, "Uh, you don't come before me. Brand's. Probably not going to be like, I should be king in the north. Uh, I, I don't see Bran being a, a rebel to John's cause there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's it's worth discussing because a lot of people asked us about that. But honestly, that's what it is. It's really just, these things are not set in stone. The laws aren't stronger than the the lords of Westeros doing what they want. And what they want is John King. That's what they're getting, just like mm-hmm. uh, so many of them supported Renly. Mm-hmm. So... Let's talk about Sansa and giant dynamics a little more.
1: Yeah, a little side note here that I think added a lot to the scene and to the vibe of the scene, which is that Sansa is wearing her hair how she did in Season 1 with those two little braids along the top, and I think it really goes a long way in making her look a lot younger.
3: hmm
0: I agree. It did. I, I, I caught that, too. I didn't realize it was the same braids as Season 1, but I caught that it made her look younger. And uh, I recently rewatched the first two episodes... I think it was last night, actually. I re- watched the first two episodes, and it was pretty fun to watch them. They were, they were you know, just to see the feel, the difference between the show and, and books there. And uh, the way people looked and everything. It's it's kind of neat to go back and look at those, uh, look at how season one looked. Okay, so how about some predictions from you guys? Yoke uh, Boy, you first. What's, what do you think is going to happen here with, with Littlefinger and Sansa and Jon and all that?
2: Okay, I think that... There's got to be some kind of danger for John, you know, on a, on a right in terms of writing. Okay, so I think Littlefinger will try and set Sansa and John against each other, and I think that it may work in the short term. And Sansa's a bit confused at the moment; she's not really sure, and she might go along along with Littlefinger's kind of schemes. We might get a rift between the two. But I think in the long term it's going to work against Littlefinger, and I think one one of you watching has pointed out that if Sandor arrives in the North, then you know he's got a lot of dirt to dish dish up on on uh, on on Littlefinger and, you know, his whole plan could backfire. I think that's a really good theory. Yeah, I agree.
0: I like that one a
3: lot.
1: Yeah, I like it a lot as well. And I think that it won't work in the long term for (laughs) Littlefinger. But I also hope that it doesn't work in the short term for him either. Because as Sansa said to Jon, only a fool would trust Littlefinger. And I really hope she keeps that in mind and isn't swayed by. I don't think she would be swayed by his declarations of love, but I think she might trust him a little more. And if he's advocating her side and sways her, I think she might put too much trust in him.
0: She might try to make use of him, thinking that she can control the situation, and it mm-hmm. might, you know, be too much for her because Littlefinger is well—he's Littlefinger, you know. <laughs> like it's like it's like that all. It's 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 sort of like that that book. Um, Mention of how magic is it's like sorcery is like trying to wield a sword without a hilt, you know You mm-hmm. cut yourself as much as you may cut other people and that that's the kind of problem Sansa may be faced with if she tries to Ride the little finger train and drive it herself because yeah, I know he's got other ideas
3: mm-hmm.
0: Lady Gwen, what about you? What do you think is going on here?
3: Well, this may not be the most popular Prediction or opinion, but I got a John plus Sansa vibe from this show uh, their first scene together started with her declaring that he's a Stark to her, and she offered an apology for not telling him about Littlefinger. And it ended with this very tender kiss of John to her forehead. And, you know, it, it was pretty much brotherly, but it, there could have been something more, I felt like. And then you get this framing in that scene in the great hall, they're sitting at the table, and they just looked for all the world to me, like Ned and Kat reborn sitting there. So in between those two scenes, we got the reveal that they're not actually brother and sister after all. So, you know, looking at the Stark family tree reveals that there are several instances of incestuous Stark marriages. The most recent of which was Ned and Lyanna's parents who were cousins of the same degree as John and Sansa, although generation removed. So, you know, these types of things have happened before in their family. They seem to be designed to hold the dynasty together and I could, Definitely see that happening here.
1: Yeah, definitely. I definitely see that vibe as well between them. I don't really want to see that vibe. I feel kind of weird <laughs> to be looking at two people raised together, but I get some tension. And I also can't help but think of the 1993 manuscript that George had where there was a romance, um, a little bit of a romance between John and Arya. So right. mm-hmm. there's a little bit right. of shades of that, and it really would just tie it up so neatly. For John and Danny, yeah. I mean, for John and Sansa to get married, and it would also cause an issue with Danny just swooping in and marrying John. eventually yeah. if that we could avoid that. Yeah, right. that'd be nice. which is another <laughs>
3: another one we don't really love to think about. Yeah. It's also I'd say that the John and Sansa is telegraphed in the book. So they're in some of the Sansa chapters. The way she sort of thinks about him, uh, as she's Elaine. Elaine. Uh, it's. It, it just wouldn't surprise me if that's where we're going. So.
0: so to get to the same place in the books, we would have to have Rickon's death there as well. And maybe, I mean, the circumstances probably can't be the same, even the, I don't think he could be killed by Ramsay the way things are right now. It's really hard to figure out how that would work. But it could still happen if Rickon is dead and then it's Sansa and Jon are the two Starks left standing with Bran just, you know, off in tree land beyond the wall. So... Yeah, that that is very interesting. I agree. I, I think it's a possibility, and I think it would be preferable to John and Danny, because that's just too kind of perfect. Although they could do it in a way that isn't so perfect after all, but yeah, it's gotta be considered very possible. Mm-hmm. Alright, so speaking of Bran, we've talked mentioned him a few times. Now it's time to get to Beyond the Wall and to talk about some of the factors that make some of these Sansa John things more likely which is the reveal of the fact that they're not as closely related as as they think right now uh like to see uh first of all Benjamin dropping them off the heart tree where sam, this is the same heart tree where sam and john swear their vows you can see the wall in the background it's not far away uh so that means they'll be arriving at castle black most certainly the maybe the first episode of next season or something like that and doesn't look like Ed and company have had any trouble in the interim while all these things are happening in the North. White Walkers are waiting for Winter to be, like, more coming, or maybe they're making it happen. That's not clear. But Winter has arrived, you know, in this last episode, so that's probably, you know, just now happening. Uh, but book, let's stay on Book Benjamin for just a minute longer. He says, I'll do what I can for as long as I can. I really like how he delivers that line. Uh, but I really wonder a book Benjen if he's going to be anything like this does he seem I mean maybe it seems fairly reasonable to think that maybe this will be fairly similar to Benjen's story even though he's not cold hands uh, but where magic is concerned the possibilities are just so wide open I, I, don't, I don't know What, do, Lady Gwen what do you think?
3: Yeah I think I think you're right and uh, you know it occurred to me recently that these Benjen episodes would have been written before the Benjen is not cold hands uh, manuscript page came to light so this storyline could have been D&D's interpretation of the books, you know, depending on how we don't really know how much micro detail, because really this is in the grand scheme of things, kind of a small detail. Um, we don't know how much they get out of that from George beyond the the major plot points. So, But it could also have been just a simply a conscious decision on their part to merge what they consider two different characters. In either case, I do expect Benjen's arc in the books to be a bit more dramatic, like maybe tied to magic and these mysterious powers that Stark Blood might have. But you know, at a meta level, his possible knowledge of RLJ is probably one of the main reasons that he's been kept off the page this long. So his, his coming back could be tied to that reveal. Not that he would give the reveal, but once the reveal's been made, and then it's kind of safe for us to see Benjen again.
0: He could maybe verify it or something. He'll be like, oh, yeah, 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 that's true. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah <that's>
3: totally.
0: <laughs> okay. So speaking of, let's go to that reveal. You know, this is this happens beyond the wall, but the vision itself is in Dorne, the Tower of Joy, and there was a little bit of a, a little bit of a teaser for the scene before it happened, huh? Yeah,
1: uh, in that scene with John and Sansa, they're talking about winter's coming. They say winter is here, and John says. Well, father always promised, didn't he? Which, yeah, he really did. He Not only in this scene to Liana, but he promised John that he'd tell him about his mother. He are yeah, be he, watching episode one, and whoops. that's what happened.
0: Next time I said, He said, next time I see you, I'll tell yeah. you later. <laughs> oh, it's that fine print. Next time I see you. Right.
3: <laughs> uh, well, I just can't say how emotional, I can't say enough how emotional this scene was um, as a scene and to me. So, you know, kudos to the actors, uh, seeing this play out on the screen. It was so close to what I've imagined all these years. Uh, it was much more moving than I ever expected it to be. I had many, many tears as Liana pleaded with her brother to save her son. That hearing that promise me, promise me, repeated over and over again. It's just, a, you know, in in puddles here.
0: Yeah. So one of the, I totally agree, it was really good. It's just there's so many moments in this episode that were that that were us book readers were just waiting for that we've been waiting for for so long and this is probably the biggest one I mean Danny's leaving what leaving marine is leaving SOS is a pretty huge one we've been waiting for that one for a long time uh, but this is really the biggest one even though it what there was n- pretty much no surprises in it. it it's it's just one exactly like the, the great step blowing up we knew it was coming it was still amazing to see it was crazy to see it play out and it was just really good now the whisper. This is a big point of interest. She, she what does she say there? I think part of the reason it's garbled is because they want to focus on John not being Ned's son. That's where they want to focus on, and later they want to really focus on who he his father is instead, and showing that he's a Targaryen in some way. So that I think is maybe what they're doing here, but it's, it's not clear. We'll have to think about it a little more. Jokbo, what did you think about what he was saying there? Like the real, the real name and all that. What, what, what did you get out okay, of it? Okay,
2: so I've got a lot of audio editing equipment and stuff like that. I'm really into it. And I analyzed it. And the audio was overdubbed onto the picture so they recorded audio separately and it it says his name is then we actually lose all audio there's just no signal Uh, and then it says if robert finds out he'll kill him so i think that the name is intentionally garbled so there's very little point in kind of lip reading or looking at the audio like i did is pointless they've done this to completely obscure it there's just no clue there it is it's purposefully obscured, but I, I would suggest that it could be a two-syllable name just because uh, I was considering the timing of it. But beyond that, I, I would say that, you know, it's impossible to tell is my verdict. All right, Lady Gwen, what do you think?
3: Um, what do I think? I think that uh, there are several hints at it being Amen. um not the least of which is John's recollection from Storm of Swords playing at uh, heroes with rob where it says he often called out I'm Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight um, but in general terms Lana choosing a Targaryen name really makes the case to dead that this child was both special and wanted not the product of rape after all and then if it's a name like Aemon which has been born by several notable Targaryens but not as yet any kings it would probably be very fitting for this child who is going to be unique in Targaryen lineage
2: Today's- yeah and in, in book canon can I just say just for those that didn't know this that Georgia said that Ned named John. so this is why it opens up the possibility that John originally had a Targaryen name Lyanna might have agreed this with Rhaegar before he went off to fight with Robert, thinking that he'd be victorious, but now Robert's won, it leaves the baby with, baby very vulnerable with this Targaryen name, and so that's why John uh, Ned would change it to John. Yeah, I, I think that there we've seen suggestions of
0: Jaheris, of Aegon, of a lot of names.
1: I like my personal theory. Yeah, uh, which is that Rhaegar just assumed it would be a female. That's why he would never get married, and John's. John Visenya Snow. Mm, Visenya,
0: yeah. Well, you think about it, right? He's trying to maybe duplicate the Aegon the Conqueror situation. He already had a Rhaenys and an Aegon, so that's one reason why Aegon doesn't make much sense because R- Rhaegar already had an Aegon child, and that ki- kid wasn't dead when this all happened. So it'd be really weird to name another of your kids Aegon. So unless
1: you're George Foreman, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, Rhaegar Foreman. If he
2: was. If it was uh, Visenya, then John would be named Viserys, because that's surely the male equivalent. <laughs> and there was already a Viserys, too, so that would be weird.
0: <laughs> so, I really like Eamon. I think Eamon is my top pick as well. And I, I don't think... I agree with you that it looked like two syllables. They could easily be playing with us there. I really tried to, like, move my mouth the way she was moving her mouth to try to figure it out, and I just, I'm like, nah, nah,
3: nah. and I, I don't think she was baby. saying John. <laughs> I, think, I think that's what she said, really. His name is Baby. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: so, yeah, so that's really good, and I think that's just a reveal they're saving for later. And that's going to be a lot of fun when they, we finally find out what his real name was. And I imagine it will be the same in the book and show. His, they're not going to give him a different name in the books or in the show that they didn't give him in the book. I mean, they could. They could definitely do that. But I really doubt it. This is one of those things that they'll probably do the exact same thing because it would be kind of weird to change. The other reason I like Amon is because there's a ton of Aegon Amon pairings in the Targaryen family tree. There's a lot of Aegons that had an Aemon as a brother and a few Aemons that had an Aegon as a brother. And a lot of times they were twins. Obviously that's not going to be the case here.
3: Mm.
0: Speaking of twins, there weren't some. <laughs> there was one baby. <laughs> uh-huh.
2: Finally, these silly
0: theories of the series that Star Wars' is Game of Thrones have died, uh, at least in the show canon. Uh, some <laughs> yes. people will still hold out hope for book canon. And, you know, more power to you. I, but you won't find any support here.
3: <laughs> no. And the baby was a boy, and he was clearly not Robert's son or Ned's, for that matter. So you have many theories were laid to rest right there.
1: Yeah. 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 I will say yeah. that I was really surprised. I've still seen so many comments. We're like, wait, so is Ned John's father with Liana? Wait, is Robert John's father? I'm like, I, I, I don't, like, I just don't Robert get it. Robert will kill him. We actually had he's a my... book reader watching it with us who was like, Wait, is John the son of Rhaegar? He was really confused. He was also
0: drunk, so. Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. what it takes.
0: <laughs> um, so was another important side detail, was that Wyla? Was that the nursemaid that we got a clear shot of? There were two nursemaids there, but one of them was featured a lot more than the other. And it was clearly She looked dornish. dornish. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah.
3: Yeah, I think that it was. This is, you know, the wet nurse who was claimed to be John's mother, but then stayed in Dorne while Ned brought John back to Winterfell with him. She's mentioned by Ned to Robert, kind of reluctantly in Game of Thrones, and then again by Edric Dane to Arya. Uh, Fans have long speculated that she was at the Tower of Joy with Lyanna, since we can guess from the narrative that there was more than just Ned and Howland. But that's not to say that this isn't simply D&D coming to the same conclusion that fans have, since we don't know like i said earlier we don't know how many of the smaller deca- details have been confirmed to them but i think it probably was wyla there and by the way that's another fun fan theory laid to rest one of my personal favorites the fisherman's daughter theory which whimsically suggested that wyla was the actual fisherman's daughter mentioned by lord Godric burrell in a dance with dragons who tagged along with Ned for the entire course of the rebellion before settling in Dorne and sending her son off to Winterfell?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's really neat. I wonder if they're gonna talk about oh, that. And oh. by the way, as I said, I rewatched the first two episodes. There, when is mentioned in episode hmm. two, I think it is. Maybe it's one. I forget. It's either end of near the end of episode one or the beginning of episode two. So, yep, they've been uh, they've set that stage for a while. Even the show thought well ahead on this, or they knew they'd get to this point or both. Uh, so that's cool. Good job there. Um, Don. leaning on the bed rather prominently there. Many people are seeing this as some sort of Azor Ahai thing, and I really, honestly, I don't get it. I don't think that it's, it's wrong to think of John as Aor, Azor Ahai, so much that I think that Danny clearly fulfills the prophecy way better than anyone by a lot. And here's the quote. Here's the, the Azor Ahai quote. When the red star bleeds and darkness gathers, Azor Ahai shall be born again amidst smoke and salt to wake dragons out of stone. Okay, so pretty much none of that is in this scene. Dawn is not a red star. It's a white blade, presumably forged from a white meteor. You can say there's maybe some salt from Ned and Liana's tears, but there's no smoke. And waking dragons from stone, like... Danny has done that clearly no one's even remotely approached that uh, as far as I can tell I I mean any she's literally done that Uh, And she was kind of reborn amidst salt of her own tears and the smoke from the pyre and the red comet was visible the red star bleeds So Danny just like pretty much perfectly checks that box off Whereas John it's you really got to stretch and kind of contort the logic there to make it work And I just don't think it does so
1: I think a lot of that comes from people just not looking up the prophecy before co- thinking of it, exactly. and they remember it as the falling star. The falling oh, star.
0: yeah, the star part. is It's the red star bleeds, and that's really important, because at dawn, just, it was a yellow. It's either yellow or white. When <laughs> you look at it, the yellow sun is on the hilt of the sword, yeah. and the sword is supposed to be white blade. So there's, yeah, yeah sorry. I, don't, I just don't think it works. And it certainly doesn't work better than Danny. So, you know, it's possible there's multiple Azor Ahais but that's the only way it would work and that's 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 very possible multiple azor highs. but yeah anyway that's my rant on azor High. so uh lady gwen you had some other great takes on this scene here
3: yeah i think once again here something i've mentioned several times already the scene transitions here really make the case immediately prior to Brand scene you had sans and little foot little finger in the godswood which scene ended with Littlefinger posing the question, who do you think the North will follow, the true-born daughter of Ned and Catelyn Stark, or a motherless bastard born in the South? Then it moves to the far North, and you get Bran's vision quest. You get the reveal of the baby born in the South. Uh, That scene ends with a shot of the baby's face, which then transitions to face John sitting in Winterfell's Great Hall. And I just thought the whole sequence was so well put together. It uh, really just knocked my socks off. Yes, well done show.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. I thought it was very well done as well. I definitely snickered a little bit at that sleepy baby's face, like <laughs> going to John, the king in the north. <laughs> will crack you up a little bit. But I also the thought that the Liana, the, actru- the Liana actress was really good. Um, her name is Ashling um, and I thought it was another great job on the casting department. Nina Gold kills it again with uh she looked a lot like Maisie just just you know and very beautiful and young. Uh wasn't sure how old she was meant to be. Obviously they've aged everyone up a little bit.
0: Yeah, in book canon, she's about 17 in that scene, maybe 16, but maybe I 18, she's maybe but I think a little 17. Older there, I, I yeah. would
1: assume. and, uh, and uh, then uh yeah. It was really good.
0: I think that it's, it's Related to that, the actress that was playing Arya's disguised version, you and I both were like, huh? When eh? we saw her, because right, she's the right height and build. and She just
1: had know. something of a look of Maisie in her face. Something yeah. about it, something in the eyes, I don't know. Plus,
0: we were just looking for her. <laughs> we were like, we know she's going to be, we were pretty sure she'd be in there somewhere. So we were already, like, looking for Arya. Like, <laughs> Okay. Let's go... We'll stay in Dorne, even though his vision was in Dorne. Mm -hmm. We'll go to Ilaria, Olenna, Varys, and the Sand Snakes. This Mm -hmm. is... uh, A lot of people weren't excited to see... Dorn again, but, but this was all right. Yeah, yeah,
1: and the Elena Smackdown I think should make uh, the majority of Dorn haters very happy. <laughs> Whenever
0: she smacks anyone down, it's yeah. lovely. It's yeah, just it's great. True. I don't care she who she's, she's talking Barbaro, to. Barbara. You know, Barbaro. That and was great. Boys. Yeah. It's all just spot on. She did that—that un-like uh, undermine someone by intentionally not knowing their name.
1: Yeah, like, <laughs> Rob Swanson yeah. technique. Uh, yeah, but then she also get a nice little historical tidbit here where she talks about the historical Lionel Tyrell from the conquest of Dorne who had hundreds of scorpions drop down upon him. Mm -hmm. Which uh, is pretty terrifying.
0: Yeah. I've (laughs) been bitten by a scorpion before. It wasn't Uh. fun.
1: So yeah, I imagine uh, when a trying to avoid that happening to her. And it <laughs> yeah. also addresses, though, the fact that the Tyrells and Martells are not traditional allies, which is, I really appreciated that they threw out a shout-out to that rift between them.
0: Yeah, and she points out that, why should I trust you? Yet, she's sitting there and doesn't seem to have any guards, so it mm-hmm. also speaks to the fact that she doesn't really care. I mean, yeah. she's, like she says herself, I don't care about survival. That's not what I'm after. She wants revenge and... Yeah, Uh, so they are definitely allies of circumstance there. But it brings me uh, to another question. Will she outlive Marjorie and Loras and Mace and her, uh, her other grandchildren in the books like this? That would be something. I really, I don't know. She is back at Highgarden in the books, just like she is here in the show. She left King's Landing before things got really awful. So she's perhaps in a better position to survive than than the rest of her family. Uh, Garland is going to fight the Ironborn, and Willis is not much of a fighter, but he's a commander, and he's certainly doing commander-type things, so we'll have to wait and see on that. Mm -hmm. So, speaking of books, though, will Tyrell and Martell ally there, too? This, I think, is a little less likely, because of the Aegon VI situation is what makes this whole thing a lot different. And if Tyrell and Martell are both on Team Aegon, which very well could happen, then they will be de facto allies rather than meeting ahead of time to agree to an alliance with somebody else. Then they'll just both have signed on to the same
1: king. Yeah, I think that's very unlikely for them to do that because their rift goes far deeper in the books than it does in the show. They have far greater racial tension in addition to tension over what happened to Willis. And yeah.
0: Yeah, now, a lot like the Kevin Varis. Pycelle, Kybern, Switcheroo—there, from book to show, where the same, basically, the same thing happened with different characters. We're getting Doran's speech to Arianne at the end of Feast in a in a way it was kind of divided um, amongst like three different or two different people.
1: <laughs> yeah, I really laughed a lot when again at Varys' entrance. it yeah, was a little. It weird. was a little dramatic. I like to picture him hiding behind a little bit of shrubbery, <laughs> waiting for that bell to ring, and then he, he's ready to make his entrance.
0: Yeah, that was pretty neat. Vengeance—it's it it the exact words from the book, though. It's a, and what is my heart's desire, or what is our heart's desire? Vengeance, justice, fire and blood. <laughs> pretty much, those are the exact, exact wording. So uh, that was pretty cool. I like that as a bit of bit of fan service, perhaps that they use the exact dialogue. But uh, I'll take it. I like
1: especially it. for fans of Varys uh, having Targaryen blood. Him getting to say fired. Oh yeah, uh, that's
0: cool. Yeah, for some sort of bright fire, bright flame, <laughs> whatever theory that does. Yeah,
2: yeah, that mm-hmm. works
0: very well. i didn't I didn't think of that. Okay, but nearby to Dorn is the great city of Old Town. Where we see yet another law of conservation instead of law of conservation of actors, we have the law of conservation of epic CGI buildings, which is looks like the citadel and the high tower are kind of just yeah. one thing.
1: I personally didn't make that jump, and when I read this in our document, I was like, "Really? I don't." That didn't seem like it to me. Um, even the history and lore videos reference the high tower specifically, so it seems like they didn't choose to make this this, this change earlier on. Um, the Game of Thrones wiki still has them separate, but on a rewatch, the White Ravens seem to definitely be leaving from the High Tower, and so it seems right, plus the way that that library was, how tall it was, it really makes a lot of sense for it to go. I wonder how tall up it goes throughout the length. It obviously doesn't take all of it, because that's an octagonal room, and that's a square tower, yeah. but... I wonder where the high towers live. They still exist. Do they live like in that in the citadel like up at the top Yeah, they, they share it part? with the Yeah, think, it's hard to say. I don't, know. I don't think they'll ever have to address no. it, so it doesn't so, matter, not. I guess,
0: yeah. <laughs> Wherever you want them to live. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so Lady Gwen, what did you think about this?
3: I thought it was really cool to see the white ravens fly. It was um, and at the end of the scene, you had another great scene transition where you saw the one raven flying into Winterfell, which is something we had speculated about seeing. We had kind of wondered if they would show all the scenes like that. Yeah, that we called that one, cool definitely. Just, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. So who's this Archmaester going to be? It sounds like there's the Archmaester. The law of conservation of actors is hitting the Citadel big time. It sounds mm-hmm. like there may just be one Archmaester, which, nothing wrong with that. It's, it's it's a little jarring from a book point of view, but, you know, it's, it's, it's again, I doubt they're going to spend a lot of time here, and instead of having a bunch of archmasters, they just made the
1: building look really amazing
0: <laughs> it's really really cool yeah
1: uh, i definitely wonder if we're gonna get more of a marwin type character or more of a magic type character or, or just the... something just a normal maester guy n- or, no elements of either
0: or pate's maester who's like lost his wits and is yeah. just like i don't I would, know that would be uh, terrible
1: for sam yeah that would that <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't be very helpful be yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not really
0: so yeah so lady gwen what did you think of the library
3: the library was amazing wasn't it yeah. i mean and and sam's you know when they even just before he even saw it and they said you can use the library you could feel his joy he was like a library uh, it was really sweet to see uh how much that gilly You could tell in her face that she knew how much this was going to mean to him she had a big smile on her face and she's kind of encouraging him until you know he had to lever standing in the waiting room that was kind of sad but I uh I do think the tragedy for Sam is going to be how quickly he's gonna to have to leave yeah this library,
0: you know the obvious reason seems leave. to be in the books it seems to be some sort of thing with Euron that's gonna be the the big conflict there but this might just be simpler it might be his father's coming to get that sword back damn it you know <laughs> and that's that's gotta be resolved if if they just like let that go. I'd have to call that bad writing if they just don't come after him for it. Like
1: It would be pretty great if uh, I think it's possible that Danny would go straight for Euron and attack him. Hmm. And if Euron's attacking Old Town and Danny comes to that region, it'd be cool to see Sam hitch a ride with Daenerys somehow. Hmm. Because Sam has some good information to share with her about the White Walkers. That's in very particular. true. But I expect him to get back up to the north by the end of next season. I do
0: too, if not sooner. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the other thing about Euron, just this is kind of a side note, um, it's possible he'll have Dragonbinder next season and it's possible he'll have some sort of, you know, he does say I am the storm and if he can control, if he can do some sort of weather thing, which is still unclear in the books whether he can do that or whether it's just he's good at timing it and making it look like magic. Mm -hmm. That could be a huge detriment to Danny's efforts if she can, you know, take out some of her ships or something like that. Yeah, that'd be because, as we said, Danny's got it. We need more for Danny to have. That's difficult because right now she just looks like insanely powerful. (laughs) So yeah, I could see that coming up. But back to Old Town, from Joanna Lannister's Tumblr. This is what we saw in that one of the cool, really cool Easter eggs in that scene was the. Armillary Sphere, a.k.a. the Spherical Astrolabe, which was the shown in the intro to the show. Now, this is a good example. See, sometimes people criticize the show of not paying attention to detail. And, to be fair, they miss a lot of them. But they also add a lot of really cool ones. And this is one of the neatest, like, most concealed ones of all time for the yeah. show.
1: To be clear, if you guys haven't noticed, the intro credits, they have that astrolabe, and it has the history of... a, a, a very simplistic history of the Seven Kingdoms, uh, going across there and that's what you see there as well. And Aziz has a little more to say about this. Yeah,
0: there's a quote from a, a gentleman named Greg Spence who says, he, he was work on the show and uh, a lot. Imagine that somewhere in Westeros there's a mad monk in a tower who actually has created a map of the world. He keeps track of where everything is happening and what's going on in that map. We don't know who or where this little odd person is who makes all these little automatons. But there's a very Leonardo da Vinci thing to the original concept. It's a weird little working machine.
1: Yeah, which is very cool. There's been other interviews with them about creating this sequence where they talked about how it has to, if you look at the stuff in the credits, it has to look like actual cloth or actual wood. They had to keep them grounded in this reality that conceivably the maesters are are creating this thing and keeping it up to date. Oh, what, the king in the north? we got to switch this out now. (laughs) But uh, another interesting thing that this thing does is it's also a a heliostat, which is like a sunlight projector because a lot of open flame would be pretty dangerous in this huge library of, of books. And so this just... With the with a series of mirrors and um, all that, it reflects light and adds a little extra light in addition to the light coming through the windows. Yeah, that
0: was super cool—the reflectors and everything, and the magnifying sun sun magnifier. And there's also apparently some some detail with the book chains. Each chain is is like relates to the maester chains. Like you have a gold chain for.
1: Actually, someone suggested that. And when I went back, I didn't see any difference. In oh, color. really? I was okay. hoping it was the case, but I never oh, well. actually saw that. Never mind then. Uh, <laughs> that would have <but> been cool. <laughs> it would have been cool if they had their own Dewey decimal system with Maester chains is what the idea was based on the color of the chain. Mm. But um, another interesting thing is that in the credits, you see this flash of glasses. Um, yeah. And look at the Maester at the front desk there. The... Pulls his glasses off.
0: It looks like he's seeing... It looks like that's what we're seeing through his eyes during the intro. Or through a...
1: another maester who has those, at right, least. Right, exactly.
0: Now, that actor is apparently a famous Danish comedian. Um, his name is Frank Vam. I don't know how to say it. It's H-V-A-M. Bomb. He was good. bomb okay bomb. he's he was hilarious no women are children <laughs> no no women are children yeah. Yeah, he, he, said that. He, really was he was just like the most like unanimated guy and then he just <laughs> you know, the way he holds his hand up for the letter that was just like oh man this guy is a jerk <laughs> but he yeah. was hilarious so good job frank bomb
2: uh-huh.
0: okay yeah. so let us go to marine I guess we start with Adieu Dario. Uh we were all unsurprised that he was left behind, but maybe a bit surprised that it was only him. That's but that's good cuz I didn't want anyone else to stay. <laughs> I didn't really even necessarily want him to stay. I kind of wanted him to stay cuz he's out of he's all just, of Danny's cadre, he's
1: he's just clutter. He's I think just... he's
0: the least interesting, yeah, at this point. He his he, he was he did his things, but yeah, I can see his arc is his arc is done. His, now his watch has ended.
1: Not only that, but like there's just plot lines that would have to be dealt with if he was around. Daenerys yeah. has a lover. What do people think of that? Daenerys yeah. has a lover. She can't get married to this person. All these plot lines.
0: Absolutely. So, how does this play out in the books? It's a very good question. Is Dario just going to die to remove that problem? It can easily happen. Or something else. I, I do think we've probably seen the last of him and now. And we probably this will probably be roughly when we see the last of him in the books. Maybe he's either dead or he gets left behind. Same thing. What do you, what do you think, uh, Lady Gwyn?
3: Yeah, I, I think this is in keeping with what we all expected. And we thought maybe he might die this season, but Dario's doom turns out to be being consigned to Marine while Danny moves on. And, uh, you know, maybe to him, it's the same difference. So I don't know, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if this is the last we see with him, uh, In the show, for sure, with the plot becoming much more Westeros-centered. And certainly in the books, I don't see him making the transition to Westeros either. Mm.
0: I like the idea of them changing the name to Bay of Dragons. That's pretty cool. I think that's going to happen in the books. Not that exact name necessarily, although it could be. Uh, Danny will almost certainly rename it. One way or the other. <laughs> she's she's not going to let Slaver or anything be the name of, of that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what a slap in the face to all those people there that hate dragons and the Valyrians. <laughs> That's
0: true. Maybe choose a more neutral <laughs> name. Yeah,
1: maybe a more neutral name, yeah. Freedom Bay. <laughs>
0: Freedom Bay. Freedom
1: <laughs>
0: Shattered Chains Bay. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, but this moves us on to our next little mini section, which is... Westeros' most eligible bachelors, or who could Danny entertain with the thought of marriage. I don't necessarily think that she's likely or would ever marry these people, but she's single. It would make sense for her to dangle this in front of them to try to ally with them. And so obviously the, the main choice is John. He's mm-hmm. definitely Westeros' most eligible bachelor, I would say. <laughs> for sure. But next is Jamie, because the show changed it. They made they set Jamie free of the Kingsguard, which is
0: interesting. Yeah. yeah, they didn't seem to need to do that. It, it wasn't necessary to send him to the Riverlands to remove him from the Kingsguard. It was, it was, it made sense to like punish him for what he did. That made sense, but it didn't have to be removing him from the Kingsguard. So, the idea that he's now eligible for marriage and lordships is very interesting. I don't think that's just a throwaway detail. Yeah, it doesn't mean he's going to marry Danny, but it makes that possible, and it means that he could marry someone. And I. Don't think it will be Cersei. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, but then there's also Tyrion is. He's available. Cl-
0: he's clearly falling for her. I think. I think. Did you guys get that from the way he looked at? Yeah, for yeah. sure. The way
2: yes. the, the camera lingered on his face after he said, "You know, there'll be other people to fall in love with you, or something," and then the yeah. camera lingered right on Tyrion. And he was yeah. just staring into the spot where she was sitting after she stood up, like
0: others will love you. And then no, she starts no, talking. No. He kind of snaps out of it, like, "Oh, yeah. what were you saying?" Yeah. So that was there was no way that was just. Yeah, I don't. There's nothing else be communicated there. That's pretty straightforward, I think. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. Although that probably won't be what happens. That'll maybe unrequited. There, <laughs> we'll I don't see. Know.
3: I felt like she responded a little bit. A little. Like, to to a point. I mean, she's the queen after all. But yeah, you know, he is. I re- mean, I'm, I'm,
0: Peter Dinklage is handsome. <laughs> yeah.
3: He's definitely, definitely very different from book to yeah. t- book, uh, Tyrion. Might be a yeah,
0: little I harder. Could,
1: I but... couldn't really see it happening in the books. Yeah, you're uh, right. Yeah, but you're... That's a huge difference in yeah. just, he's, he's, attractive. Uh,
0: he is messed up in the books. <laughs> he's, he's to be not, fair, he's... she
1: doesn't really need to secure an alliance with Tyrion. So it wouldn't help her in that regard. But it's if true. she has, has something for him and he does have, you know, some claim to the, the West, so it could be helpful to her. Um, But someone else who could help her lock some things down is Gendry. Mm. He hasn't appeared in a while.
0: She'll like his big, strong rowing arms.
1: (laughs) I I saw a lot of jokes about how Daenerys is going to be sailing along and they'll just see Gendry.
0: Like, pick that guy up.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And of course... uh, as much as we don't want him to be, Euron is also.
0: Euron's on the table. Maybe makes more sense in the books. Is it some sort of thing that could happen there. Yeah, whereas rather. here, Danny's
1: been warned off about him and his big cock, and she yeah. knows. And she knows it's not really that. And she's big. told Yara. Yeah, <laughs> and she's told Yara that she would help her kill him. So I gotta think he's not really an option. Yeah. But Littlefinger, is hmm. is technically an option. Yeah, he's a, he's, he's an outside shot. But Seems he has like someone him. else that Littlefinger might push to be a shot. Which is sweet, Robin? Oh God, he is. Uh, <laughs> that would bring the veil in. Ugh.
0: Sweet, I do not, sweet Robin Targaryen. <laughs> I
1: do not think Daenerys would accept this marriage proposal, but I think that it would maybe be bandied about.
0: It's shades of uh, of the Arryns trying to marry. I mean, the Arryns and the Targaryens have a long relationship. Yeah. the, the, the Arryns among all the great houses have the most closeness to the Targaryens out of anyone. They have the most. The Targaryens have more veil Arryn blood than any of the other great houses. Let's put it that way. So, so that's that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, I
1: don't know what Dan Nair's reaction <laughs> would be to like. I, I like to imagine like a scene where she's entertaining all these marriage proposals. <laughs> she's like this guy is missing his hand and he sleeps with his sister. Mm, this, guy this guy's, guy's a missing dwarf. his nose. This guy's, and he's, yeah.
0: you know he's kind of ugly. <gasps> this guy's yeah, low born. This guy's and, got yeah. a got blue lips. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, none of them are great except for John. Really, he's, this
0: guy has a little uh, finger. Uh, but
1: yeah, I think uh, York boy. I think you had some thoughts about this as well.
2: Yeah, this episode really has opened up the way for some Westerosi shipping, hasn't it? Yeah. Uh, Sansa, Jon, Tyrion, Danny. Like like we've said, they were of interest to some people. But um, in my opinion, Jon Danny is definitely making me think. I'll, I'll say I've really never liked this idea. But with John being the king of the North and Danny set for King's Landing, you know they could unite the kingdoms like never before with a Targaryen Stark marriage. So, as much as I don't like it, it's definitely worth considering in the longer term. I think it's it's definitely plausible. I do think it's safe. the The safest bet
0: is that John and Sansa, John and, <sighs> and Danny, will get together. But yeah, it's not a sure thing. I don't think we could say it's a sure thing at this point. Mm-mm. Yeah. Okay. so...
1: And, and I like the option that if John just marries someone else before that would have been the straight and before simple. Before the option even comes
0: up, yeah, maybe she's already, already with Sansa or something <laughs> by then, or. <sighs> little betrothal to Lady Liana Mormont. They don't, you know, they won't, there's not going to be any consummation for a long yeah, time. Yeah, we just but.
1: want her cemented into the show.
0: Yeah, just bring another Liana into the, in the mix, right? You know, let's see your mother with Liana. Get that going again.
1: Oh, by the way, I, I don't think we pointed this out at the time, but I thought there was a nice uh, parallel, a nice detail there with uh, another Liana, a Liana defending and advocating for John at the same time we see his mother, Liana.
2: But,
1: uh.
0: That's true. I Okay, let's talk about Tyrion becoming Hand of the Queen. I think that was really cool. I It's one of those things that, if you think about it, it's like, oh yeah, that's probably going to happen. But we didn't really think about it, at least not, I don't remember us talking about it in the show. It just makes a ton of sense, but I don't know, I don't think we brought it up. So it's like, oh yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Of course he's going to be Hand of the Queen, and of course, that's a good choice. Yeah. Uh, we, we're all kind of loving the thought of what Cersei might look like with her great facial acting, what she might do with her face if she sees, like, Tyrion on a dragon, like, coming for her, you know? <laughs> well, she's going to be like, you have got to be kidding me! <laughs> <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> I thought I was
1: the best Lannister at burning people. <laughs> you
0: can't even out-burn me, sister. <laughs> <laughs> Saving the books, maybe something like this will happen? I don't know. I feel like... I think we we're all more leaning towards Jamie being the one to take out Cersei, and then Tyrion ter- will have little to do with it. Uh,
1: I just want her to get the news. The yeah. Tyrion's there with Daenerys, hand with the Queen, coming at her. And, even if she dies before that, I just want her to know.
0: Now, the interesting thing here about Tyrion is if we're in, even entertaining the notion of Jamie and Danny, the the elephant in the room is... Jamie killed her father so like some people be like no way is he ever gonna marry she gonna marry the guy that killed her father I don't know if that's a is a problem or not because frankly Daenerys admits her father was a was crap she calls him an evil man and if she finds out from Tyrion who knows unlike book Tyrion that Jamie's act was actually fairly selfless that he saved King's Landing that might change her opinion of him Big time, especially if he kills Cersei. So Daenerys is collecting people without penises. She could also be collecting Lannisters who've killed other Lannisters. She's got mm-hmm. Tyrion who's killed Tywin. And she could get Jamie who killed Cersei. Eh, it's possible. It's possible.
1: Mm-hmm. Cersei's killed some Lannisters. <laughs> <like> Cersei,
0: <then? laughs> yeah, she's like yeah, I was like, wait, I killed I killed Kevin. And Lancel. <laughs> and Lancel, yeah, bring me on. <laughs> I- I've killed two of them. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's pretty cool. Um so do you guys? Anyone else have any thoughts on Tyrion's hand to the Queen? What, how that might play out? Or
3: mm. no, I'm just you know same as you. I didn't didn't see it coming. Literally, <laughs> literally when she said, "I have something for you," I said out loud to my TV, "I didn't see that coming." <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know why, but I didn't.
0: Yeah, it seemed it's like oh yeah, of
3: course, right? Of course, yeah, right.
0: <laughs> okay. It's interesting because. Barristan is her is kind of the hand of the queen in the book um, at the point where Dan is, Danny is gone. But I, I, I'm actually yeah. remember, forgetting here. Did she name him that, or is that just kind of what people are calling him because he's just the guy?
1: Who?
0: Is Barristan, was, Barristan? Did she? She named as that was official, right? She actually officially named him hand of the queen. Or is he just kind of taking that role because after like in the chaos of her leaving unexpectedly, people? Um, he's, I, I can't remember to be yeah. honest. I didn't look that yeah, up before.
3: Yeah, I didn't either, she and it's, that's had, a good yeah. a good point that might illustrate something. I've found a <coughs> uh, book-reader blind spot. I've found a couple of, uh, like, not considering Tyrion as the Hand of the Queen because Barristan's already in that, but, you know, Barristan's gone, and... Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. so it just didn't occur to it didn't occur to us because that's not the way it is in the book. Butterfly so. effect. I'd but
1: like to point yeah. out um, this is a good point to mention it uh, here, which is that this episode had a huge amount of parallels to the season one finale, in yes. that Tyrion is named Hand of the King. Hmm. He's named Hand of the Queen here. Rob is named King of the North. If that same happens there, Daenerys has a powerful ending scene with her dragons. Yeah. and there's uh, a quite a few other similarities, actually, between the finale. I didn't write them out, though.
0: That's true. That's a very good point, yeah. And it's also, of course, as a, you know, as a point of interest, it's the most successful finale of Game of Thrones, which is probably a surprise to nobody, Mm -hmm. given how well-received it was. Uh, One more thing before we get to our wrap-up topics. This episode is going to go a little over two hours, it looks like. The Great Armada. Mm -hmm. Danny's scene of sailing to Westeros. Really, really visually awesome. We predicted this would be the last scene. This is our top pick, I think, so we got that yeah, right. That last right. year
1: during our awards show.
0: Oh, did we do that last year, too, we, we even did called that,
1: it? I mean, last year, we did our awards show where we predicted things for this season. Oh. And in that, I saw people commenting. They said, you guys got it right on with that, and are you returning to Westeros?
0: Oh, cool. I don't remember so, us that, naming that so we far, We talked ago. about, produ-
1: yeah, we talked about production, yeah, predictions.
0: Good um, job, us. <laughs>
1: <were they>? <laughs> <laughs> so. wishful thinking.
0: Yeah, yeah, or wishful thinking. We just got lucky, yeah. <gasps> no, good, uh, really good acting from Amelia there. I, I'm up and down on her as an actress in general. I think that she's gotten stronger, though, as the show has gone on. Um, she's particularly good and moments of fierceness I've always thought Mm -hmm. she hasn't been quite as strong with sadness but this was really good so maybe she's just getting better she's certainly got a ton more experience in season one I mean Mm -hmm. she's been outside of game of thrones too and I mean she's just got a lot that's the bottom line she has a ton more experience Yeah, she
1: was nice and teary-eyed on uh, the bow of the ship there um, knowing that she's going to be in Westeros soon just a a little bit of hint but more joyful but uh, I also thought that uh, one thing that amelia does do very well in her acting which is that she has to work with cgi a lot a lot and she that's that's a talent to be able to do that seriously and i mean i think of when peter dinklage had to first do it with the dragons and interact he was cracking up in the behind the scenes thing at how silly this was Uh, he's
0: like talking to like big green tubes and things like that (laughs) like like big plastic blobs like trying to be scared of a giant green plastic blob is yeah you gotta really be good at on top of your acting game to pull that off. but yeah highly recommend the behind the scenes stuff for this for this season especially these last few episodes yeah Daenerys is like sitting on this like bucking bronco type thing mm. as a dragon CGI and she's <laughs> with the with the fans blowing in her face and she's really funny about it she's one of the i think she's actually got some of the best interviews cuz she's really funny in these she interviews is. she's like woo like yeah get me on this dragon blah 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 she's just like really just I know loose about it She's cool. been asked
1: before if uh she'll ever incorporate her sense of humor into daenerys's character and she said she's tried multiple times it just doesn't work daenerys has doesn't have much of a sense of humor she's too severe yeah
0: i don't has she ever like laughed i have (laughs) never laughed out
1: loud i I know she's smiled and been humored yeah she She
0: definitely giggles in the books she definitely laughs in the books but But i I don't know i don't know if she ever has in the show (laughs) maybe she has or like um, a
1: scoff at something.
0: <sighs> yeah. I really like uh, a note. I think I it looks like I have an incomplete note here. I think it was our Patreon supporter, Ashlyn Winter, Lady of Skyfall, who pointed out that the scene starts with Theon looking up and how meaningful that was and how cool a good way to start the scene was and how Theon is in a position, is in a really interesting position in that he's surrounded by... Successful eunuchs, like people who have made a good life out of them, you know, like they're like examples of what he could still do with his life, you know, and and uh, that's kind of cool and, uh, that he's might energize him a bit, you know, I'd show him that you know uh, even taking the page out of um, Grey Worm and Masande's deal, like their relationship thing has kind of fallen off as a thing. That was more of a Season four or season five did they do that more? I forget. But they, we haven't really gone back to that. And we may yet. It may be a part of what's going on. And I, I wondered maybe that they had abandoned that because maybe both of them wouldn't come to Westeros. So I thought maybe Missandei. Ha <laughs> ha! Pun intended unintentionally. <laughs> but, you know, that romance plot seems to have fallen off. Maybe it'll come back. But...
1: I think it's enough for a... For us to know that they have a romance between them. They've established that, and it adds a lot yeah. to their characters in the background, like the scenes where they're all three with Tyrion, and they have a little bit of a bond right there.
0: Yeah. It might be cool for Theon to see that. Yeah, yeah, I, see.
1: Does, yeah I don't think Tyrion knows that they're a couple. Oh, does he? Did he make a joke about it one time?
0: Theon or Tyrion?
1: Oh, uh, Th- Theon, yeah, sorry. Tyrion made a joke about it, you're right. Yeah,
0: Tyrion Th- I don't, yeah, I don't think Theon, I mean, Theon is, we've hardly no. know what Theon thinks of everything around him at no. this point. <laughs> So let's see, a couple, um, another interesting point here. Of course, it's, it's, it's important to, to point out that that armada wasn't just Targaryen and Greyjoy ships. It had the Vale, not the Vale, the Reach and the Martell ships were part of that. And of course, Varys was standing there. Funny point that that's the first time Varys and Daenerys have been seen together <laughs> <laughs> out of all these things they've been working together on. So uh, what's happened is Varys, let's talk about the timeline for a second. A lot of people complain about this and talk about it as another use of teleporters. I am reserving judgment. It is not necessarily the case. It's it, always important to note that what we're seeing, scenes don't line up chronologically. So what we can, what it seems to be the case is Cersei crowns herself, or at least blows up the Great Sept. And then Elena finds out. She's contacted by the Sand Snake, or by Laria and the Sand Snakes. They meet up. So that's already happened by then. Varys comes in. They agree to the Alliance. Varys goes back to Wester, or to Marine with the Martell and Tyrell ships to pick up the army and then we're seeing that happen that play out. So Danny's leaving Marine is probably at least a couple months after Cersei has taken power. Which? So if they don't address it that way next season then it will be of a big writing flaw. But if they show like some months have passed then it, it all fits. So right now, we can't say it's bad. We, we might be able to right away next season. But
1: I hope we see Cersei's reign of terror, like how it's affected King's Landing, everyone's scurrying about, scared. Because to me, I can hardly imagine Cersei ruling for two weeks, let alone two months. And if this has to be more than a few months, that's a... Pretty long reign for her, to be honest to me. So I'd like to see what she's dealing with during that time.
0: <clears throat> yeah, I don't think it's that long, to be honest, because there's just no one to stand up to her right now. I think in the, I think she she's on borrowed time for sure, because there are, uh, there it is shows that- the power is there to take her down, but they have to like. Get together. And do it, it
1: implies that Jamie's—I don't know what Jamie would do. Whether he just leaves or whether he's putting up with it for months or—I agree—that's the what. biggest open
0: question. What Jamie will have done in this meantime, I think that's the one that they really will need to address to not make it be plot hole ish. So, now we took a Twitter poll, uh, which wasn't quite done by the time we started recording, but it was almost over, and there was no way that it was going to—the result was going to change. The question was, when will Daenerys land in Westeros?
2: And in the, the options
0: were early the Winds of Winter, middle of the Winds of Winter, end of the Winds of Winter, or sometime in the dream of spring. And by far, most people picked the end of the Winds of Winter. Um, I probably should have said, when will she leave Marine, Because leaving mm. Marine and getting to Westeros are two different things. They could, one could be the end of a book, the next could be the beginning of a book. Mm. But 1,200, over 1,200 voters, and by far, over 50% said end of T-Wow. So that's, I, and I agree with that. That's what I would vote for, too. Mm-hmm. But I could see it being early A Dream of Spring. And it could be something like, like uh, one thing I talked about with Jeff Hartline, uh, Brendan B. Fish, was that he could see her, say, landing at Dragonstone. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't necessarily, like, and that counts as Westeros, but in a sense it's not her landing in a dangerous situation. She's kind of like establishing a base, which is a totally different situation if she lands on the mainland. So I, I could see that being kind of a wrinkle in how we perceive it. So, as we head towards our closing statements here, closing comments, we have to look back at the fact that this is just a massive upheaval, all in one episode. It's nothing like we've ever seen. The North, the Vale, and the Riverlands are loosely kind of coming together as a faction. Uh, Lady Gwen, what do you think about that?
3: Well, I think um, I of this all as in terms of the, the houses, because it's a big theme in the in the books the extinction of houses and you know what's going on there you've got stark tully and aaron are all kind of hanging in there but by a thread in some cases they're they've not many heirs but they have better prospects than most so they're in terms of their of that alliance maybe they're looking the strongest
0: yeah that's true um we also have the west and the Crownlands, lands and and maybe the iron islands it's not really clear who is gonna fall in line with cersei at this point whoever does could easily just change sides when they see which way the wind is blowing and they see how bad her prospects are uh what do you think about that situation Lady Going?
3: They have not very good prospects. Jamie Cersei's it in House Lannister and so you know heirs uh, who knows. Yeah. And I I don't know. We don't know any uh crown ma- major crownlands house I don't think yeah. or um, There's plenty of other
0: Lannisters it, in the books, but it's just we not right. know what it's, there is in the show, yeah.
3: It just seems like they're all wiped out in the show and the Iron Islands if if it's if that's the Euron faction and it's not like he has Prospects for heirs at the moment, right? Um, yeah. So, or we don't really know.
0: So then we have this Dorn Reach Daenerys Yara theon alliance, which also includes the Unsullied and the Dothraki and all that. But the, those aren't political players really at this case. It's really just the the, the Westerosi factions are the are the players, I think. Uh, the mm-hmm. way it's shown, it could be different though. The I
1: mean, Dothraki are gonna be have to be settled.
0: Yeah, they are. I just I mean they're not a political force. That's a yeah. yeah they're a, they definitely are an issue, and yeah, they're they're culture and stuff could really clash with westeros yeah. and the snow as well could be a big problem right. for them
3: it's a, it's an interesting parallel there with the dothraki and the wild and john's wildlings actually is they both now have these sort of mm. hordes of unwelcome visitors that they're bringing into westeros that's so. a good point
0: i hadn't really thought about uh, comparing the wildlings to the, to the threat dothraki
3: maybe they'll intermarry. <laughs> <laughs> They'll settle down together and <laughs> make little Tarman uh, wild man. Tarman can marry that
0: one Lazarine Khaleesi that that Danny made <laughs> for <friends> him. <with. laughs> <laughs> right, right. She won't be afraid yeah. of his beard.
3: <laughs> <No>. <laughs> like Brienne is. Oh, <laughs> but you get the you know, the Martells and the Tyrells, they don't seem to have any legitimate heirs, you know. Elena seems to be it. Like you said, there's they haven't talked about cousins, Tyrells, you've got Yeah. The sand snakes. I, I don't know what people think about their legitimacy. Elena didn't seem to think much of them. Uh, so, it, Danny and Yara and that group seem to have be pretty much the only ones that have prospects of, you know. Marrying, making alliances, having heirs. So. Yeah,
0: and the Stormlands is just—I don't know. Like that, it's not really. They don't really talk about the Stormlands in the show much at all. It's just kind of there. I don't know if they just kind of consider it part of the
3: Crownlands or something. <laughs> Maybe at this point it's just been absorbed. There's yeah. no Baratheons left. Yeah, so, it's, yeah,
0: that might be something they address briefly, like with a sentence or two next season. You know, just to kind of catch us up on who's in line with who, but. Right now, it's yeah. That's yeah, the I tend most to think confusing. We're
1: just not gonna see a lot of this uh, sort of. It's either gonna fighting potentially because it may, it would make sense for there should be a bunch of Tyrells like, oh, I want to be, the new ruler. They should be making their case to Daenerys and to uh, Olenna and to Cersei. That's true. Like I would expect someone in King's Landing to be like Cersei, give me the reach and I will go, you know, take it for you.
0: Yeah. But that, I, don't, yeah. I don't
1: really expect it to see that. Same with Martell. I don't expect anyone to try to get power there.
0: I agree. Yeah. Of course, we also have the White Walkers. Uh, they're, you know, what about their air situation?
3: <laughs> they have plenty of airs. Like a, a 99 or 100 Craster's kids. How many of them are there? <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> there's a perception that there's only three White Walkers left, but I, that's not true, um, almost certainly. We see 14 of them. In the scene where Craster's kid is transformed. And we only see four at that cave scene. And one of them dies. So uh, people are going with the four reduced to three as the number of White Walkers. But I don't think we can just assume those other ten or ten plus are just gone. So I think there's plenty of White Walkers. They just aren't all standing there together. They didn't want to film like a whole bunch of them at once. They just wanted to keep it simpleish, But they didn't want to only have Night King. So blah, blah, blah. Anyway, let's talk about our ratings what we all give this episode first off imdb it's a 10 of 10 again first time ever for any tv show having back-to-back 10 of 10 episodes there was lots of fan service so and and several huge plot confirmations that are long suspected in the books and it was epic and the scale was huge so it was pleasing to show and book people and those of us who were both it's also the highest Episode 10 ever, as uh, in the final final episode of a season. The previous high was The Children at 9.6, which is Season 4. Episode 10s in general have been very highly rated. The lowest was last season, though, with only an 8.7. I think the next lowest is a 9.2. They were all 9.2 or higher. So they've generally done a very good job with the ending of a season. But this is even better than that high bar they've set before. So let's... Uh, Let's give our ratings. I think I went first last time. Yo, boy, we'll start with you. I don't remember you going first recently.
2: Okay. I think any flaws in this episode are minuscule and not enough to take away any points for me. So I'm going to give this uh, full marks, 10 out of 10. And, you know, that's not something I'd do lightly. I thought it it was outstanding TV. I'm not sure what more you'd ask for in a TV show. Mm -hmm. All right. Lady Gwen, what about you?
3: Oh, ditto. Ten of ten. I just can't imagine it having been better, except maybe one or two minuscule little things, and is definitely not even worth thinking about. Uh, they addressed so many of the issues that I took away marks for earlier in the season. Yes. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it fixed previous I, episodes,
0: which is a really neat thing for an episode to do.
3: Right. So... So thank you. Yes. Good job.
0: <laughs> All right. I'm going to also, I would consider giving it a 9.5, but I kind of agree. I think if anything is going to be like, there's no such thing as perfection in, in the real world. So this is as close as you can get to perfect. So I think if you don't ever give anything a 10, then fine. But if you're ever going to give something a 10, this is the time for it. And I got to agree. I just, just thinking about how much fun it was for me, how emotional it made me, how like, just like at the edge of my seat, I was the music. It's the best I've ever done in that regard. Yeah. I can't ask for, I'm with you. Yoke boy. I can't. And lady Gwen, I can't, I can't ask for more. I I can point to things that weren't perfect, but that's unreasonable to think that it has to be perfect to give it a 10. So I'll give it a 10. Uh,
1: My internal reviewing process. I would give it a nine. Um, for rating it on IMDb or for other things like that where I don't hold it to the same standard, I rated it at 10. Um, I think that all of what you're saying is true, but for my internal rating, I compare it to other TV shows. It Fair just, enough. it was very, spect- it was spectacular. It was moving, it was great, but it still just was missing a certain emotional element for me that would have made it a 10 personally. Okay, um, cool.
0: That's still obviously a 9 is th- I think you giving it a 9 is still higher than anyone gave, any of us gave any of the other episodes of the season <laughs> or at least tied with. So that's still mm-hmm. really high praise even though it's slightly less than us, so that's
1: cool. And again, I rated it a 10 on IMDb. Yeah, I effectively yeah, yeah. rated it a 10 and like Battle of the Bastards I gave a 9. I bumped the each up a point cuz I don't think it's fair necessarily to compare them to like My other favorite dramas like you know etc
0: yeah I agree with that cool so well we don't have a lot of our typical ending episode ending episode things like we don't have trailer spoilers to discuss about but apparently we do have a few of our usual ending episode things like this uh, you have a worry
2: here Yeah,
1: I do still have a worry it was suggested by Laura Timmons but I was worried about it anyway sir pounce who's gonna feed sir pounce <laughs> and loves her pounce, well, more importantly.
0: The Rainey's kitten, yeah. Balarian, did just fine without an owner, so we can hope that it goes that way. She stole she into a, mean a chicken cat, from though. Tywin.
1: That's she true, she did. Cat. She did
0: turn into a mean cat. That's uh, true. There's right. another
1: something, though, we're missing, though, which was uh, we kind of have covered it, but I still think it's important to go through our favorite and least favorite yeah. moments, our plot lines, etc. however you want to delineate them Uh, i'll start with mine yeah Um, go ahead
0: we'll go in reverse order of of our ratings
1: so it just has to be the entire first part of the episode with the green trial with the editing the music just it was all perfect and and that i do rate a 10 it's just the rest of it isn't a 10 for me to be clear that was perfection of it in a tv show and i loved that My least favorite, and again, I say that with an episode with Old Town in it, which I love Old Town (laughs) and the Citadel, so it shows just how much I liked that, that I'm willing to (laughs) rate it above Old Town. But my least favorite would, I, I wasn't a huge fan of the King in the North scene. Okay. I guess. Yeah. That's my least favorite. But again, I liked a lot. It was just like, I was not as into it.
0: I guess it's hard. to are to call it my favorite moment because it's not favorite. But Tommen's jump was both what affected me the most. It was the most well done in a sense. Like it got me the most. There's a lot of things that could, you know, hit you emotionally. So I'm gonna go with that because it's really difficult and because I'm just thinking about that. The emotional impact was just the heaviest for me. So I'm gonna call that uh, maybe not favorite, but I'm substituting favorite for just most impactful and well done. Uh, least favorite. I guess the Arya stuff was my least favorite, and I still liked it a lot. It just—it just came with the whole, "how is this even possible?" <laughs> kind of questions. Which I, I'm not trying to be too critical there, but I can't help but have those questions. So, I mean, again, I'm only picking this because yeah. it's hard to pick something. <laughs> so I'm going to say the Arya stuff was my least favorite, but I still really liked it. So it's yeah. just like I got to pick something.
1: Yeah. Uh, Lady right. Gwyn. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Uh, the King's Landing scene—you know, the first part—that fu- it was—it felt like a movie. It was—it was so well done. Uh, and I, I would include the final scene, the Cersei's crowning, uh, in that. It just I I loved the rest of it too. It, I actually I loved the Jon and Sansa stuff, and um, but that just it just stood out because of all the outstanding the, the costuming and music and everything. So right on.
1: Yeah. And least favorite?
3: Um, uh, least favorite. Um, this, this is hard because I don't really have a least favorite. So. Um, you know, I'm going to say something with a huge caveat that I, I really liked this scene, but the Citadel scene, I felt could have functioned better in episode eight, just because it wasn't as epic as some of the other things that were in this episode. So, you know, it I just felt like that could have is equally well <laughs> been placed in a different episode and functioned. It just was kind of a more muted But maybe we all just needed a chance.
0: Well, episode eight was the least.
3: Catch our breath or something.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Episode eight was, I think, the least popular season, so that definitely would have helped it.
3: (laughs) It would have improved it. That's what I was saying. Uh, I was saying to Yoke Boy, uh, like, well, if they had just moved that over there, it might have actually bumped episode eight into a little
1: slightly (laughs) (laughs) higher category. Uh, Yoke Boy, what about
2: you? My my favorite is, like, uh, you've both mentioned the 20 minute. Feast of a cinematic experience there uh, with with a special mention to Tommen. And my least favourite, I'd probably echo what Lady Gwynne said. I thought that Citadel was... maybe didn't quite fit in with the pace of the the rest of it but you know what I still love the citadel and I'm saying it's my least favorite so what the heck (laughs) yeah
0: we're both naming things we liked as our least favorite because we just don't have any you know (laughs) there's nowhere else to go there isn't anything like oh that was glaringly bad yeah Uh, Exactly. okay so let's do our credits we have again remember folks we will be doing one more episode to wrap up. We're also doing a show only Q&A on Monday with Sean. That's uh of course July 4th, so if you, you know, y'all have the day off, if you're in the US, that's Independence Day. Come join us for that or just catch it later, catch the recording later. But definitely try to join us for the book readers Q&A. We've got plenty of things more to talk about. We're going to have some extra news. We had some things in our notes that we didn't talk about today. Plus y'all are going to ask us a lot of questions. Some of you already already asked us a lot of good questions. We'll be addressing those questions. We'll be thinking of new things to talk about because it's only been a few days and we'll come up with new ideas. That always happens. And we'll, we'll also be giving some Season 7 news. We've, we've already got some advanced knowledge on, like, directors and some maybe some locations. And by the time July 11th rolls around, there'll probably be a little more information on that, too. So, look out for that. Check the description box for the, the event page. And... As since we're winding things down, basically for the season here, I know we do have the one more episode. But as we move towards that end, it's a good time to point out what we do in the off season. Radio Westeros, you guys, when is your next episode coming out? Is it going to be pretty soon after the season's over? Or is it you guys
2: going to hit the ground running with that? Yeah, I think we, I think, I think we might have an episode brewing, all about Aegon the Sixth, coming out probably in about two weeks. Um, if you haven't checked out our podcasts. We'd really love it if you gave us a shot. We're a book-only podcast, and, you know, we go in deep. We've got lots of theories. I think you might enjoy it if you like History of Westeros. So check us out at RadioWesteros.com or on our YouTube channel.
0: Right on. I certainly will be checking that episode out as soon as it drops. Um, I also want to point out that our book review, book episodes, are quite a bit different than our show review episodes. If you guys only tune into us during the season and you read the books... You might be surprised at the difference. We're, we, we go for a similar length, but it's f- almost fully scripted. We have visual goodies. We have occasionally maps on screen. We, we have an video actual intro camera. Yeah, we've got we a have webcam. Much higher quality, and we get to take more time preparing it. So we get to put those, you know, those tender touches on it to make it more uh, when we have more time. But with these reviews, we got to get them out quickly. We don't have time for all that editing and all that. We just got to get it up there. So definitely check those out if you haven't. And uh, we'll be doing a lot of new ones. Um, also, if you are like me, I've just started to re-listen to the books because I'm trying to refresh myself on Book canon. We've we discussed in this episode several spots where there's what Lady Gwynne calls a book reader blind spot. And that's, that's a thing, for sure. We, we, we forget the small differences between book to show that sometimes aren't small. You know, like, like Tyrion knowing about the wildfire plot from Jamie, whereas he doesn't in the books. That's a huge difference. Uh, same with Cersei and there's there's a ton of examples like that like knowing where the brand's alive there's just so many of those things and it's kind of hard to keep track of so I recommend now that the season's over get back to the books read them again refresh yourself and if you don't have time for that listen to them check it out audio audio, audible.com go to our website there's a link for a 30-day free trial if you sign up for that you're under no obligation you can get a book for free Game of Thrones great place to start if you don't like the audiobook experience, you can cancel that trial. You won't pay a dime. But if you do like it, hey, you found something new. Another great way to enjoy the series. And again, if you didn't like it, you get to keep that book for free. Cancel the subscription. You still get to keep the free download. So that's a very good deal. And I highly recommend it. I use it myself. I'm not just uh, putting it out there to, to make dollars. I actually am. I stand by the product because I use it myself. Okay. So let's do our Patreon credits. And we will... Again, remember to check the description of the episode for the time for our Q&A. You can sign up and uh, ask your own questions, or upvote the questions that are already there. All right. Thanks to First Lord Cash Craig, Hand of the King, Lord of Mines, Lord of Makers, and the Black Pupil. Lord Jim, the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog, and Warden of the West. Lord George Stormsville the Cunning is Lord of the Chiliad and Warden of the East. Lord John Reed of Castle Woodbridge is the Lord Borealis, the Light of the North, and Warden of the North. Lady Kelly McMath of Covington is Lady of the Villa Hills and Crescent Springs and Warden of the South. Our small council is Lord James Inkblade, the Scholar Knight, Master of Whispers. Grandmaester Saria of the Barrows is Cinder of the Citadel. Lord Robert Jacobs is the Master of Coin. Rosie the Cleverer, the Cleverest, yeah, the Max Clever, is Master of Laws. Lord James Tuttle is Master of Ships. Lords and ladies in their castles include Lady Diarly of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron, Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bell is Breaker of the Second Stone. Lord Skip of the Velt is Lord of Castle Ganges. Kabeth the Unfrozen is Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light. Mary Meg is Lady of the Bloody Stepstones. Gregor the Toasty is Lord of the Breadfort. And he pointed out that I couldn't think of the word midwives in the episode with Sean. I can't believe I couldn't think of midwives <laughs> talking about the Tower of Joy scene. Like, wait, those women were
1: low baby wives. helpers.
0: <laughs> no, low lives. High lives. High <laughs> wives. <laughs> they were all too stoned to call the maester to help out Lyanna, was bleeding to death. Uh, Alicia Everlasting of the Green Blood is Lady of Desert Rose. Geoffrey the Unflinching is Lord of Sand Lake. Lady Gri- oh, Lady Lord Grey Bay is of the Queen City. Lord Ryan of Castle Stonegate is guardian of the Rocky Mountain Pass. Lord Garen de Havilland is of Devil's Hand Keep. Lord Brandon Slate is the Norse Hammer and Harbinger of the Old Gods. Lady Bram is Light of Winter's Garden and Beacon of the Northwest. Ashlyn Winter is the Hawkseye Lady of Castle Skyfall. Lady Mikkel of Moonacre is leader of the Weirwood Protectorate Alliance. Lady Cachon Valant is of Swine Harbor. Lord Barone of Hillcrest is Lord of the Halls and wielder of the Valyrian steel machete Everglazed. Lord Alistair Whittaker is Lord of the Dawnhold. We also have King's Justice Sir Troy the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian steel blade Fate. History of West King's Kingsguard is commanded by Lord Commander Dubbington the Red Bear. And our History of Westeros Night's Watch is commanded by the great Lord Commander George the Golden, backed up by First Ranger Fabian Flowers, the Bastard of Greenshield, First Builder Liana Kelly, Lady of the Steelhold, and First Steward Dolorous Rowanit Cantrell, Wielder of the Valyrian Spoon. Now, our Patreon voters recently have voted on an upcoming episode, which we allow about three to four times a year we do that. The winning vote was called, uh, episode is Oracles of A Song of Ice and Fire, it's like Ghost of High Heart, Old Nan, Patch Face, Even Dollar's Head falls in that category, so we'll be, we're working on that episode. We're also working on Bittersteel episode, we're working on The Great Empire of the Dawn along with uh, David from uh, Rather Lucifer Means Lightbringer of Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire podcast. We are mostly working on though the Forsaken chapter read at Balticon that is the reason we didn't put out any more Song of Ice and Fire content during the seasons because this came along, we dropped everything to start working on that and we are almost done. It's a big document. We're actually gonna end up doing two episodes, one on that and one on Euron. So a lot of material we have ready to get going with after this season is fully wrapped up and we'll be working on it during this interim between our next recording of the Q and A. So lots of things to be excited about, lots to come from History of Westeros and we will be back with our wrap-up episodes. So we'll see you all next time. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Thanks again to Radio Westeros. And thanks to as well. <laughs> we'll see you all next time. Valar Morghulis. Valar Season Tennis. Adios. Season Tennis. Episode Tennis. Valar Season Sixes Episode Tennis. My bad. <laughs> Adios, everybody. Thanks again.